Louder! Hey, Joe Bob Briggs here, wishing a happy fifth anniversary to the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. I can't wait to hear what you guys have in store for your Texas Chainsaw Massacre in-depth retrospective. Um, since, as we all know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the greatest movie in the history of the world. Uh, Brandon and Fat Tony know this already, of course, but... Uh, Chainsaw was made in Round Rock, Texas for $50,000 and change and ended up being banned in 30 countries, banned from cable TV for almost 40 years, used for a long time by our Congress people as a reference every time they want to talk about how depraved and worthless American culture had become. Fortunately, we have the guys at the Black Lodge here to say, fuck you to all y'all, Leatherface triumphs and Leatherface rules. Thrill me. Black as midnight on a moonless night. Bitches leave. Groovy. Fucking hold up, hold up. Well, then there, motherfucker! It's got a death curse. Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. Forever deep, <laughs> Oh! Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you a special edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. It's been a long time coming. It's been a long road, but we finally made it to our five-year anniversary. And hot damn, what a better anniversary present could we ask for than that incredible introduction from our benevolent mutant overlord, the leader of the last drive-in, Joe Bob Briggs. That introduction would definitely rank four stars on my list, but we're hoping that the legions of the rant army out there are going to give four stars to what we have in store for this five-year anniversary episode. No ordinary movie would suit this occasion, so we're headed to the back roads searching for some high-quality barbecue with an in-depth retrospective of one of the greatest horror films ever made, the original and best Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So stay tuned. But first, we asked for audio from the Rant Army, wishing us a happy five-year anniversary, and the Rant Army delivered in spades. Let's hear what you had to say. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello, everyone. It's your podcasting overlord here, TJ Bowser. Just wanted to stop in on this glorious occasion to say happy five-year anniversary to one of my golden boy shows, Rants from the Black Lodge. These boys have been with us for a few years now, and it's been a real honor to have these boys on the Project Louder Network. The immense skill set and talent they have is recognized, and it translates to those sweet chart rankings all over the world. And rumor has it, Brandon is actually bigger than David Hasselhoff in some countries, and I'm looking at you, Vietnam. But joking aside, I really do appreciate these boys and this show. Since joining us, we have seen you grow immensely, and a lot of this is due to your work ethic and content consistency. Brandon is constantly looking for opportunities and asking to help out any way he can. I truly value his friendship and loyalty to Project Louder. Here's to another five boys and taking over the world. Podboss out. Hey guys, this is Brendan. 
just father wish you a happy fifth anniversary at the ranch from the black lodge uh you guys were my favorite podcast i've ever listened to and i just found you guys because i was searching on one night and they said what's these horror podcasts and, uh you guys popped up i've been a fan ever since and as for my favorite uh favorite episode i love them all but my favorite episode was the uh the first time on Elm Street Part 3 commentary that you guys have done because that's my favorite movie of all time. And I love how you guys were arguing about Toto by, uh, Toto singing Rosanna and you guys didn't think it was that the guy was right. I can't remember who it was who said it, but, uh, I remember that line a lot. And, uh, congratulations again on your fifth anniversary. You at least five more. There's a 20 more, you know, it's like, keep going. You guys so no, showed no signs of stopping and, you guys are awesome on my book. Keep going, guys, and happy anniversary, and stay awesome, guys. Hey, Rant Army. This is Adam Fielden from Newmarket, Tennessee, and I'd like to wish Rants from the Black Lodge a happy five-year anniversary. I've been a fan for a few years, but my all-time favorite episode would have to be the Cannon Cup. Congratulations, and I can't wait for what else the podcast has in store. Hey fans, it's me, your favorite teaspoon of party clown, Trixie Sparkle Pop. I'm just dropping in to wish my spooky friends over at Rants from a Black Lodge podcast a happy five-year anniversary. You guys did it. You've kept our chills and our thrills. My personal favorite was Child's Play. Thanks, guys, for all your updates, audios, and keeping us in the loop. Happy five years. Yeah, happy fifth anniversary, Rance from the Black Lodge podcast. This is Scott Adams Prime, Fat Fuck Scott, Lord of the Lard, OG of the POD, wishing one of my best friends in the whole world, Brandon A. Lane, the happy five-year anniversary of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. It's been a wild ride seeing him go from where he started to where he is now, and I look forward to see where he is going in the future. Everyone, subscribe. As far as my favorite episode that I've been a part of, I, I love the Evil Dead ones. I loved all my Jason stuff. But honestly, for me, the ones that are near and dear to my heart are the uh, the Kiss episodes. That's how I got started, and I've had to pick one, probably Detroit Rock City, because that movie's just so much fun. Happy five-year rants. Happy five-year Brandon. Look forward to see where you go from here. Love you, bud. Hey, this is Cameron wishing Rants from the Black Lodge a happy fifth anniversary. Leprechaun 4 was a shit movie, but I fucking laughed my ass off recording it. XOXO, Gossip Girl. Congratulations on five years, guys. And thank you to my dad, Fat Tony, for taking me to see Darcy the Mail Girl. It was a really great moment for me. My favorite episode would have to be Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Happy five-year anniversary to Rants from the Black Lodge. I would say my favorite episode would be the Reanimator episode because it was the first episode I listened to from the podcast. That's what began my love for the podcast. Keep on kicking ass, and here's so many more years. Cheers. Hello, Rant Army, and happy fifth anniversary. <laughs> I actually can't believe that you've you've been here for five years, and it's it's been a lot. 
And I love you guys. I can't thank you guys enough for what you do. My all-time favorite episode has to be the Human Centipede 3 Rants After Dark episode. All because it was just really fun to hear, you know, Fat Tony and Brandon discuss, drunkenly discuss, one of the most horrific films in all of history, I guess. But I love you guys. Happy 5th anniversary, and I can't wait to see more of what, you know, the podcast has to offer. Hey, this is David Thomas. Been a member of the Rand Army since 2019. Happy five-year anniversary. The show rocks. I enjoy every episode I listen to. It's hard to choose my favorite episode. I'd say any of the Ghostbusters episodes are awesome. Just knowing how much heart Brandon has for the franchise. He's amazing at his knowledge. And any episode with Fat Tony and Brandon, those two crack me up. Uh, the other guys crack me up too. Y'all are great. Can't wait to hear more. Keep on rocking for another five years at least. Let's rock and roll! Yes, this is Judd. Yes, Judd. The only person named Judd to ever grace a microphone at the Black Lodge. Just want to give a, a shout out and congratulate my good friend Brandon A. Lane for a marvelous five years of speaking wise, true commentaries, and facts on great horror classic movies. Although I do hold the record for the worst episode, that being Frankenhooker, I'm not taking blame for it. <laughs> My favorite episode would have to be Leprechaun. Great movie, great cast, great time. Had fun doing it. But here's to you, Brandon. Here's to another five years of, of making great, great content. All right, goodbye. Hey, this is Jason Davis, technical advisor to Rants from the Black Lodge. I've been a friend of Brandon for 15 years. And uh, I've become a friend of Tony and some of the others on, on the podcast as well. And I just want to say a sincere congratulations to you guys. You've, you've built something out of nothing and it's, I think it's really primed to take off. And, and as, as someone who's been a fan of Brandon's humor for, for many years, it's great to see it in a, a great, place like this where uh it can be wild and crazy and and uh everybody in the world gets a chance to experience it from our days of uh you know working at a newspaper together and having all these sketch comedy ideas or movie ideas or things we love to do i i, I love seeing that that brandon's creativity has has found a, a great a great outlet uh, congratulations to five year anniversary on the podcast to Brandon, Tony, Scott, uh, and all, all the others that have appeared over the years. Uh, way to go, Rants. It's a big deal when a podcast makes it to the five year mark. And I'm happy to say that Rants from the Black Lodge has done that and is part of this elite group of people now. This is Richard, aka uh, Nerdy Laser from Night of the Nerdy Laser podcast and FrankenCon. And I just wanted to drop a note saying how proud I am of you guys. I've only been listening for a couple of years, but you guys are great. You do a great horror podcast podcast lots of in-depth stuff funny commentaries we're so glad to have you part of the franken family and that's why i wanted you to come on board with us because you guys entertain the hell out of me so keep on doing that and from me matt jeff and Corey, uh, congratulations on making it to five years and here's to five more ran army 
Wrestling Ruined, and Next Evolution podcast here. Eddie Shepard along with Travis Lasseter with the big five-year anniversary. Travis. Hey, Brandon. Uh, congratulations on five years, you fucking Canadian bitch. But you know what the best episode was? It was goddamn motherfucking point breaking. You fucking know it. Also, Suburban Commando and uh, Ready to Rumble were kind of cool, too. Um, anybody over there at Rants from the Black Lodge that doesn't like wrestling, you can go lick my asshole. And also, Fat Tony, you can go fuck yourself. We appreciate all the opportunities of being on Rants and helping us grow our audience here as well. We uh, know Halloween 4 is the highest rated episode, a hot, most listened episode, so you're fucking welcome. Thank you so much, Brandon. We love you, buddy. Love you, even though I make fun of you all the time. Bye. Bye, buddy. The past 1,825 days have led us through many creepy locales, including Crystal Lake, Elm Street, and even the deadite-infested woods of Morristown, Tennessee, our hometown. But today, we're headed deep into the heart of rural Texas to not only celebrate the fifth anniversary of the Ransom the Black Lodge podcast, but also to sing the praises of one of the most iconic films in the history of not only horror, but cinema in general. Tonight, we bring you an in-depth retrospective for the 1974 drive-in juggernaut known as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and joining me tonight, I'm just overjoyed to be chewing the fat, figuratively and literally, with my best friend, and I'm hoping he'll be yours. Fat Tony. Sometimes drunk, always fat. Fat Tony. Sorry, I kind of squashed his intro for me because I'm so fucking excited about this movie. It is my favorite horror movie of all time. It was the bar that my mother, church-going mother, said is, if you like this movie, you're going to hell. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm so fucking ready. (laughs) Is there another film that would be more fitting for us to celebrate an anniversary with? No. No. Well, how Stella Garter grew back, maybe. But that's for for the 10-year anniversary. We'll wait on that. I, I'm, I'm hoping that we're still in business by then so we can really get into the minutia about the, the pros and cons of a, a lovely woman getting her quote-unquote groove back. By then, we'll have crushed Joe Rogan's podcasting empire and be making money from this. Yeah. Also, the world may not be uh, it, existing it in 10 years. Who knows? That'd be shit. That's five years from now. Five years from now, let's radioactive be, hellscape. Let's be conservative and say by the 15th anniversary that we're in a completely dystopian Mad Max. I've, I'll have eaten you already for food. Sorry. I'm big. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> okay. Uh, me and our question. When did you first see Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I was nine years old. I'd heard about it since I was in kindergarten because my sister went to some sleepover. She's like four or five years older than me and had watched it. And my mom was so mad that those parents would allow them to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It'll harden your soul and turn you against God. And I'm not exaggerating. That's a quote. Um, so I'd heard about it. So it worked. It worked. I mean, hell, Satan. Thank you, Toby Hooper. Rest in power, King. But uh, no, like I was nine years old. This was one of the first summers. I was kind of home alone. This was uh, not the year I finished all of the horror section of my dad's video place, but it was immediately like I looked old enough and they knew my dad worked for Pete, who owned the place. They'd let me rent whatever. I'm like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Took it home. Broad daylight. Broad daylight. Summer. Home alone. From the sledgehammer attack on, I'm just in a constant state of, I fucked up, but could not get up to turn it off. Uh, I saw it a little later in life. I was probably 12, and 
you have to remember where we grew up. There, a lot of places didn't have older horror movies. There was sort of like an eighties cutoff, yeah. and I remember vividly seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre three, probably at like eight or nine years old, and really enjoying it. But the mythos and the the air that surrounded Texas Chainsaw Massacre was just so thick. I, I couldn't I couldn't wait to see this movie. And I will say this definitively, it's probably the only time that a movie that had that much build up to it lived up to my expectations. I've had that and uh, Mad Max Fury Road are the only two movies I've heard so much hype about that lived up. That's a little different, though, because there's no, the, with that, you, you had, like, what, six months of build? No, towards, it was like two years, a year and a half, well, too. Well, you know what I mean. But there I'm are, just, oh, like, yeah, like, your entire lifetime, yes. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I swear, like, I mean, I could not physically get up from the couch to go to the VCR to hit stop because the batteries had died in my remote that week, and I hadn't gone and got batteries. I couldn't do it from... <laughs> the leg shake fucking thing. That, that fucked me up I think more except there's one other scene in the movie which we'll probably get to in the victims that is the scariest kill of all time for me well I'm certainly waiting to hear uh, your take on what we have uh, to talk about later on in the, the retrospective but let's just hit the ground running and get through our technical info Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released October 11th 1974 on an estimated budget of $300,000 it grossed $30,860,373 now put an asterisk right there and we'll talk about as to yeah, why a little later why. on what a hell of a return on an investment. Hell yeah. Horror movies, like horror movies are sound investments. If they're done even passably. Do you, do you know anything about vertical integration? No. Okay. So. Is that a sex thing? It, it, it can be. <laughs> this, we don't have time to go into the, <laughs> the ins and outs of your sexual proclivity. That's what Google is for. So type in uh, vertical integration and you'll, you'll, uh, vertical in- integration rule 34. There, <laughs> yes. there you go. That, that should get you where you're going. But vertical integration technically is illegal, but the studio system was able to get around it. Basically, it's a law saying that uh, a studio can't own Movie theaters. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I know what you're talking that about. That way, now. like, uh, it gives the marketplace an, an even uh, field. Like, a, a movie theater will show things by Paramount, by Columbia, you know, so on and so forth. Drive-ins, however, got around this because they would, a lot of them would produce their own films, so they would have their own stock. And over time, you know, it sort of filtered out into other territories and stuff. But... Texas Chainsaw Massacre was absolutely created for vertical integration, not so much by the people who actually created it, but by the people who funded, funded it. it. Yeah. So it was a, it was a scam. It was an absolute scam. But a the greatest very, scam of all time. I, I would argue uh, uh, probably two times the greatest scam of all time. Easily, there, nothing is even close. Uh, a scam that we hold near and dear to our hearts. Love it so much. Uh, what do you think the IMDb rating is for Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Okay, this is going to be uh, out of 10, right? Out of 10. 6.4. 7.4. Wow, see, that's the thing, because like, it's been reevaluated, and they, they realize, a lot of people realize the, the masterpiece that it is. Fuck you, Scott, for not, but... Um, oh, we'll get to you, Scott. We're coming. We'll get to you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay, so... I, that's good. I like it, but 
And if anything, I think it deserves to be higher. 9.8. I'd put... I'd There's be, no titties. Okay. <laughs> you got to deduct half suck. I, this may be the only movie where I think that's inapplicable. And we'll talk about it in just a moment. What do you think the Rotten Tomato score is for Texas Chainsaw Massacre? 84%. 89%. That's close. And the audience score, 82%. Fuck. So there's not a huge... Uh, Scott's on there review blasting it with a bunch of different uh, review yep. <laughs> with, accounts. With his dark web friends. Yeah. This isn't anything like Pokemon. <laughs> Um, I, I think that's fair for general audiences. Yeah. Um, however, it goes hard. The the critic meter, I, I think this should be higher. That's just my personal There's opinion. There's a lot of little pansies. I, I agree with you, but I understand why, because there's a lot of little... This isn't, you know, the sweet hereafter or... Um, the importance of being earnest. And critics like that are going to hate anything that... that Attaches itself to a base emotion. Well, first, they want to feel high art and better than everybody. First of all, of all the earnest movies, the importance of being earnest is my least favorite. Yeah, duh. So, I don't care how much critics love. Not it. one it, pratfall in the whole fucking thing. There's no, there's no anti Nelda. There's no, there's no Snake Man. Come on, bullshit. Fucking bullshit. All right, Metacritic has it at a seventy-eight percent. Now, Metacritic generally we hail as being the worst aggregate, but they're they're there's not. so much hipsters that they. Want to be hipster with this too? They're they're not entirely off base. Still lower than it should be. Shutter. What do you think? Uh, five, I, five skulls. Four point seven out of five. Four point seven. There's some di- fucking. Sh- it's fucking Scott. It's fucking Scott it's on Scott there. Review bombing, bombing everything. Uh, Google users, which we generally hail as being the most accurate. Oh, I'm scared. All right. You're what saying, do you think? Out of a hundred. I want to say ninety-eight. Eighty-seven. You, you let me down, Google. You hurt me. You hurt me deep. This right. movie means a lot. Right. This one will cut the deepest if it is not in the direction you want it to be. But the only review that means anything is the Rant Army review. We put it up in the Facebook group. Two options. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, good. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, bad. What do you think the Rant Army decided on this? Because there's film? always a dick that doesn't like it. And we know his name's Scott, but there's probably another dick that agrees 92. So, I can tell you unequivocally that Scott did not even vote in this. Okay, good. If he had, it it would have probably pegged it down a bit lower, but 99%. Okay, good. Okay. I think that is the most accurate of terms. Perfect. Off by a minus one. This is a perfect horror movie. It is a fucking perfect horror movie. It's right. hard to jack it to. No tips. <laughs> you, you, you just alluded to it. Stank dick, Eddie's titty tally. We have zero breast. And I'm going to make the case. This may be the only slasher film in the history of slasher films that I think breast would have taken something away. I, I honestly, all joking aside, I agree because it, it gives you titillation in a movie that is almost documentary feeling, very matter-of-fact, very relentless and brutal. You're right. And if they would have worked in titty that wasn't like that, it would have been super disturbing sex assault titty, which, you know, <laughs> isn't that sexy. So that's still Speak enough. for yourself. <laughs> I spit on your grave. It's the most romantic movie ever. <laughs> Hashtag canceled. Oh, uh, <laughs> okay. So... I think we're both in agreement that, you know, breast would have, would have either... Could not have improved it. Well, it, it it could have made it more disturbing, but probably to a point where it would have been unwatchable. Yeah. And I, I think we're right in, on that line of uncomfortability. Oh, yeah. And we don't, we don't need any, 
you know, the cook, like, let me see them titties, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> I would have liked to hear him say that, because that would have been a great line, but. All right, on Fat Tony's hit list, we have five kills. And this is not a body count movie, but those five kills. You go fucking remember. Man, they're, they are, they're ingrained in my memory from, from today to the end of time. That averages to one kill every 16.6 minutes. So it's still fairly balanced throughout the running time. However, there is, you know, there, there's the hard left where it goes slow, slow, slow. Bam! It's yeah, that, on. That third act is uh, relentless. It's like, a laugh a minute. It as, really is. As I mean, Carson would say <laughs> that, that. I think the first time I saw that movie, the whole third act, like I didn't take full breaths. It's like just like sitting there, like kind of in a panic mode. Like and Anna, I've fight or flight kicked in, and I was total. Like froze. You also also had to remember that Fat Tony was considerably less fat back in those. No, days. No, I was a chubby kid too. You got me fucked up. I'm old school. I I had a. Period. I'm trying. I'm trying to assert the the effectiveness the of illusion. Oh, that's true. No, I had a. No one knows what soft, you look back then. Sophomore to like through junior year, I was pretty fit. You know, I could have. I wasted my high school years on on my high school sweetheart, but I could have. I could have tamed strange then. It was it was a different time for all of us. <laughs> Now listen, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in my opinion, is the perfect example of less is more. And more is more. It is the perfect balance so much. Of, of everything you can want out of a horror movie. And in my opinion, mind you, is very much backed up by a hefty return it saw in its box office. So let's take a trip back in time and check out the stiff competition of 1974. Alright, Fat Tony, if you would read the top portion of your script here... Okay. Bad Ronald. It was a prediction of the future of Ronald Reagan being president. <laughs> Beyond the door. Black Christmas. Blood for Dracula. The bloody exorcism of Coffin Show. Fucking love those movies. Hell yeah. Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. That almost sounds like a, like an anime. Deranged. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. From beyond the grave. House of Seven Corpses. Okay. Impulse. It's alive. Killdozer. Again, a future documentary of the real Killdozer. <laughs> the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. That's a, that's a crazy movie. Kung Fu. Yes. Vampire. Hammer Films. Wonderful. Mwah. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Madhouse. Sugar Hill. And Vampires. Now, normally this would be the point where we would break down the financial returns to determine the top five genre films of this particular year, there's just one problem, and it's a big one. I could not find the box office, box office returns for most of these movies. Yeah, this is like way about loosey-goosey, mob run. And, and that's you're right. It's because of the vertical integration, and they didn't want to share their profits uh, with the public because they wanted to be able to keep all that from the IRS. So we're going to do the top... 20 biggest box office successes of 1974, regardless of genre. All right. So, if I had to ask you to read the, the bottom part of your list, and then we're going to figure out where Texas Chainsaw Massacre lies among those films. $30 million in 1974 is, is a super hit, but I'm going to say I'd put it in like the top 10. I mean, because there were big movies of the 70s that, you know, had worldwide big box office. So I'm going to say number eight. 
conservatively. I don't know. I haven't seen. Now I'm looking at it for the first time. Read it. Chinatown. Ingrungan an die And even put good luck pronouncing LOL. <laughs> the Godfather 2. The Towering Inferno. Benji. Death Wish. Uh, Freebie and the Bane. <laughs> Dirty Mary Crazy <laughs> Larry. <laughs> the Longest Yard. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. The Trial of Billy Jack. Goddamn right. <laughs> Dirty Kung Fu Hippie. <laughs> Uh, Air- he's, he's a white man playing a Native American. You cannot make that movie today. Yeah, if, they, if, they could- remade, if they remade Billy Jack today, he would be uh, the dude from Renegade. And that's the only... Lorenzo Lamas? No, no, the, the actual Native American <laughs> oh. Renegade. You're racist! <laughs> I thought you were being, like, de- de- anyway. They need to remake it now, but have an actual First Nations person just beating up a white guy. <laughs> for like, I'm going to put the right side of my foot across the left side of your face. He's like, what are you doing here? It's dinner time. They'd and he just to, kicks him. They'd have to update it, though, and he wouldn't be a hippie. He'd be a hipster. And this movie, <laughs> He'd have a mustache. This movie would suck. Okay. <laughs> Airport 75, leading to the greatest airport movie, Airplane. Airplane, goddamn right. Uh, Herbie Rides Again. I used to love those as a kid. Now, they no. The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. Young motherfucking Frankenstein. Hell yes. Oh, I love it. That's Mick Strong's favorite movie, by the way. Oh, it is. That's a good taste. Murder on the Orient Express. Earthquake and... Motherfucking Blazing Saddles. I didn't realize those came out the same year. This is, this is a banner. Talk about movies you can't make these days. All right. So, where, where, where did you think that takes Seven or eight. Seven or eight. All right. Number 20, Death Wish with $22 million. Number 19, Chinatown, which uh, I just watched um, a review from Red Letter Media who did Roger Rabbit. And I had just watched Roger Rabbit like probably a week before, it's and I hadn't seen it in years. Chinatown for and cartoons. I, I, I didn't fucking it never it never clicked in my head until they said it. I was like, "Holy shit, it is the exact same plot?" <laughs> yes, the exact same plot. Number eighteen, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, great fucking movie. Number seventeen, that German movie. I'm not even going to attempt to. It's a documentary. I'm assuming. Uh, so it'd be number one on the documentary list. There you yeah. go. Number 16, The Great Gatsby, <coughs> which is bullshit. Number 15, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I went too far off. And there's a Godfather 2. I didn't realize how much competition is. Jesus that. Christ. These movies, from here on out, they're they're making <coughs> like mad money. Dirty, Ma- Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, great, great. Uh, I have uh, no idea. You've never seen Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry? Nope. It's, um... Peter Fonda, or is it... Uh, God, it's been years since I've seen it. It's either Peter Fonda or it's... Ah, uh, oh, crap. The guy from The Great Escape. Steve McQueen? Steve McQueen. It's either... It's one of them, but it's a it's an exploitation movie uh, where, you know... It's basically Bonnie and Clyde, but updated. Okay. It's a really good movie. Uh, Freebie and the Bean. Have no fucking idea what that is, <laughs> but it made $30 million at the box office. Uh, number 16, Benji. I hate movies about animals. And I hate movies about animals that speak even more. Benji doesn't speak, though. I know. Okay. So Benji gets a pass. Okay. It's fair pass. enough. Uh, Herbie rides again at number eleven. Uh, number ten, murder on the murder on the Orient Express. Man, they're still milking that teat. Hey, man, Kenneth Branagh's was fucking awesome. I like I like Kenneth Branagh a lot. Um, I still haven't seen the movie. They they give his mustache a backstory in Murder on the Nile. His mustache is the only person with a full arc. 
Just like Tom Atkins. <laughs> uh, number nine, The Longest Yard. Great fucking movie. Rest in peace, Burt Reynolds. Uh, number eight, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. Number seven, Airport 75. Number six, The Godfather Part 2, which raked in $57,300,000. Number five, Earthquake, 79700000 Young Frankenstein, 86300000 the trial of Billy Jack, which I have to what I have to be, people were on Billy Jack's dick in seventy four. <laughs> That's like the third one though. Oh, uh, eighty nine million dollars, and then we have the two movies that broke a hundred million dollars in nineteen seventy four. We have The Towering Inferno with one hundred sixteen million, and number one, believe it or not, a comedy broke the fucking sound barrier, and it is. Arguably number one or number two greatest comedy. Oh of all yeah, time. easily. Blazing Saddles with one hundred and nineteen million five hundred thousand dollars. God damn. The first movie with farts in it. It other has other things in it too. <laughs> well, other things we can't safely talk about on any visual or auditory Gee, medium. It's funny that you bring up the farts though, because for years, if you watch that on television, they edited that scene out. On certain channels. Yeah. Because farts were offensive. Oh. Farts were offensive. How, how far we've come as a society. All right. With the information uh, that we've gathered, we can easily declare that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was far and away the biggest horror movie easily. of 1974 because of some shady dealings. We don't know exactly how much money the Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually made. So that number, more than likely, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably in the top ten like you originally thought because we don't know how much money. We only know the money that they declared. God bless those mafia people. I don't care <laughs> that they let them launder it. They brought it to us. You know, you got to outweigh the good and the bad. The good far outweighs whatever bad. I've seen The Sopranos. It's mostly good. <laughs> uh, so to properly explain why we got a look into uh, the film... Let's go from page to screen. The road to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre began at University of Texas, Texas at Austin, where future director Toby Hooper was working as a documentary cameraman. While at the college, Toby would form a collaboration with Kim Hinkle, and they would go on to produce a feature-length experimental hippie film in 1969 called Eggshells. Have you seen Eggshells? No. I know that it exists. I've heard of it, but I've not heard or seen any of it. I worked in a video store for a time. Uh, and that's how old he is, people. Yes, back when video stores were still a thing. And I was going through my most pretentious phase of film. We all have and, those. And I was really, really into uh, the the proto films of like, uh, I saw Dark Star around this time, John Carpenter's yep. first film, uh, uh, the Bronco Billy movie that he made. And I'm like, well, I'm going to see Toby Hooper's first movie. So I had them special order eggshells. <laughs> I couldn't make it past a half an hour. This is the most pretentious hippie bullshit I've ever seen. Now, granted, I love Toby Hooper. I love Toby Hooper. And a lot of the what makes eggshells great is evident in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just I fucking hate hippies. And it, Damn you hippies! There was, there was too much hippie nonsense in the movie for me to really yeah. sink my teeth into it. I've actually wanted to go back and rewatch it because my I may have a different opinion now that I have a more cultured, you know, existence. Now that we're older. Yeah. Uh, but I could probably appreciate it for, for the quality of the filmmaking as opposed to just the, you know, hippie nonsense. It's like a big acid trip. And um, I, 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 I'm a big story guy. 
and uh, visual linear visual bullshit. Yeah, doesn't I mean, fly. Which, which is funny because I love David Lynch, but there's still there's still a, an eight of one in, in David Lynch. You know, there's a point for things and not yes. just here's here's a weird thing for the sake of weirdness. I know I just turned off a, a whole uh, subsect of people who think David Lynch is yeah, nonsense for the sake of nonsense, but that's you're entitled to your opinion. Now, eggshells cost a hundred grand to make, and I have no concrete numbers to be able to say if it was successful. But considering Toby and Kim decided to make a second feature, it couldn't have gone too badly. Yeah. Um, the genesis of Texas Chainsaw Massacre came directly from graphic news coverage from post-Vietnam era America, but also drew heavy inspiration from the crimes of Ed Gein. Back in the 1950s, and Texas-based uh, serial killer Elmer Wayne Henley, Kim had this to say. I definitely studied Gein, but I also noticed a murder case in Houston at the time, a serial murderer you probably remember named Elmer Wayne Henley. He was a young man who recruited victims for an older homosexual man. I saw some news reports where Elmer Wayne said, I did these crimes, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to take it like a man. Well, that struck me as interesting that he had this controversial morality at that point. He wanted it to be known now that he was caught, he would do the right thing. So this kind of moral schizophrenia is something I tried to build into the characters. Now, between 1970 and 1973, 28 teenage boys, young men, and just men, were abducted, tortured, and raped and murdered by Dean Coral. Dean Coral enlisted yeah. David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley to assist in the capture and torture of the victims, which became known as the Houston Mass Murders. So, we've got direct parallels in these characters, well, between the characters from Texas Chainsaw Massacre and these real-life murderers. We've got the cook, who's the mastermind of the whole thing. He's like Dean Coral. We have Brooks, uh, which is the hitchhiker. He was the more violent of the two. And then we have... It's a good, it's a good picture. <laughs> and then we have Henley, who's basically Leatherface, the reluctant one who's, for lack of a better word, been talked into doing these awful things. Were you aware of these murders? I've, I've known Dean Coral. Like, not back then when I saw this. Uh, like, you know, past... Five years, like, listen, true crime podcasts, and of course, Ed Gain. Like, everybody, like, there was some film company back, like, right when Blockbuster was still a thing, they'd do all these based on true story. They did a really good Ed Gain one. It was still Steve Rails back yeah. yeah, and a real fucked up Ted Bundy one. With, with, with the uh, guy that looks like he should have been stay, Superman. Stay, stay tuned, uh, for the, um, uh, we're gonna have, Later in the month, we're going to have an episode that's going to feature uh, John Wayne Gacy's actor. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. Those, yeah, I'd they, heard of those from those movies. Um, now, for years, it's been burned into my brain that the film's chief point of inspiration was Ed Gein. But this information is jarring to me because you, you can't deny the influence of Ed Gein, but like the, the direct influence was these other murders. Yeah. That, that's sort of adverse to uh, the narrative that has been, you know... Well, Ed Gein's the big rock star, superstar of fucked up crazy people. That's the one people are, oh yeah, it's Ed Gein. Well, let's talk about Ed Gein. Um, Good how- arts and crafts guy. <laughs> Loves his arts and crafts. He was very creative um, <laughs> in, in nipple belts, um, human skin lampshades. Yep. Um, he was great with a shovel. <laughs> Man loved to dig. He loved his mother a little <laughs> too, too much, much. A little too much. Um, couldn't let her go. And despite the fact that he he's he has this reputation as a serial killer, he's not actually a serial no, killer. No, he killed he's, two people. He only killed two people. Um, I mean, two, two is too many. 
Oh, we don't. Let's, we're, let's, we're not advocating murder. You know, you get one. <laughs> one if they really deserve it or if they don't put their sharp shopping buggy back at the you know, grocery store. <laughs> well, that, that's a freebie. Well, uh, well, that's incentivized at cer- certain places. You put a quarter in, they give you a quarter back yeah. if you if you take your... I part- believe it should be strictly a moral decision that you should do. And if you don't, you're not worthy to breathe my air. And, and uh, the Gestapo whips you if you don't take it back. <laughs> Put your cuffs back. <laughs> See, we could use, we could bring it back for a good. We're taking back the Gestapo. No, no, we're not. No, no. I do not condone the. What are the words on that page? <laughs> um, but let's talk about it again a little bit. The, the you mentioned it. He's the bone art that he made and the stuff with skin. He made definitely influenced the art direction of the interior of the house. He he wanted to make a skin suit because he had, I guess, what you would consider now body dysmorphia, and uh, he wanted to wear a lady skin. Literally, that's that's fucked up. It's almost <laughs> it's almost more yeah. fucked up than a person who just murders people. Oh yeah, he was a product. Like the two people he killed, he didn't kill because he hated them. He just needed more material. Yeah, I, I, I Hobby Lobby wasn't open at that time, so that's true. They're closed on Sundays <laughs> yeah. as well, so it's it's hard for serial killers to get their fuck you Hobby Lobby <laughs> to get their get their needs. Uh, now listen, they they finished uh, shooting the film in 1973, uh, but director Toby Hooper was left seeking distribution. The project had already gained a nasty reputation in Hollywood that resulted in the film being blacklisted by every major studio. Enter. Bryanson Films. Bryanson Films would release the film, but they had a shady secret. They were affiliated with the mob and were operated by Louis Perino and the Colombo crime family based out of New York. That That's some straight out, um, you know... That's some Soprano shit. Soprano's <laughs> Goodfellas shit. I mean, the Colombo crime family. That sounds made up, does it not? It really does. It sounds like something in a bad movie. <laughs> Thankfully, we're, we're talking about a good movie. Yeah, great uh, movie. Uh, Bryson had been very successful in distri- uh, distributing uh, John Carpenter's first film, Dark Star. Yeah. Uh, Sylvester Stallone's porn film. Uh, some st- do you have the name? It's well, stud it's, or it's uh, it, one of the alt It titles. was uh, a party at Kitty's, something like that was the original title, and they retitled it Italian Stallion to, yeah. after Rocky came out to capitalize off of his stardom. I mean, he's he got a good sized dick. Good for good for you, Stallone. Way to go, Stallone. Anyway, that's the, the I would think that's. Probably, I like to know I live in a world where Cobra is packing, kind. Of. I mean, it's not like intimidating and well, crazy, but. All of his characters are packing, but but the man that's it's it's the like man behind it's, the it's like how Terry Bollea has a regular size penis, but Hulk Hogan has a ten inch penis. <laughs> Gawker trial, look that shit up. <laughs> uh, Bryson's accounting practices were irregular at best and illegal at worst, screwing the cast and crew of these films out of millions of owed profits. Eventually, Bryson were sued for failing to pay full percentages at the box office. And a court uh, judgment uh, instructed Bryson to pay half a million dollars uh, to escape their debt. They declared bankruptcy. So basically, they're a bunch of assholes on top of being illegal mobsters. Uh, in 1976, Bryson were indicted for conspiracy, conspiracy to distribute obscenity across state lines with Deep Throat, which was still doing the Lord's work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and they saw Louis Perino would be fined ten grand and get one year prison sentence. Whew! So even though they they screwed everybody out of some money, eventually, like uh, they people were restituted and you know everything was everything was hunky dory. But 
does the does the means justify the ends and all this? I'm sorry. Yes, I'll say. Normally, I'd be like, "Oh, I feel bad for the artist, the directors, actor." No, it's such a good movie. I don't care that they had to get screwed over. It came out okay in the end. Yeah, but they had to take legal action against well, them too. Well, then they too. they were able. This is America. They were able to. <laughs> this is America. I thought this is America. Hey, they're lucky they're not sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. There, nobody. So they still up, ended up happy. Nobody was murdered. Nobody ended up with concrete shoes. Uh, nobody got drug out in the pine barrens and uh, and shot <laughs> next to a stump please, of a tree. Please have mercy on me, <laughs> John Turturro from that damn Cohen Brothers movie. Oh man, uh, we'll talk more about the production and Toby Hooper as we go on. But first, I'd like for you to read the synopsis and read the top part and we'll save the bottom one for just a moment. This is the first time I'm getting exciting bottom parts I'm not supposed to read. But <laughs> When Sally, Marilyn Burns, hears the desecration of a family member's grave, she and her paraplegic brother, Franklin Paul A. Partain, uh, set out with their friends to the back roads of rural Texas to investigate. After a detour to an old farmhouse, they discover a group of crazed, murderous, and possibly cannibalistic outcasts lurking next door. As the group of youths are attacked one by one by the chainsaw-wielding and human skin donning Leatherface Gunner Hansen, the teens must do everything they can to survive the Texas Chainsaw Massacre real quickly before you go on. I also have to mention Gunner Hansen's other amazing tech chainsaw movie, Hollywood Texas uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. I almost near wore, and dear. I almost wore the shirt today. Oh. It's, it's, it's in the laundry right now. Um, that synopsis does a fine job of broadly explaining the plot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but nothing will do a better job at setting the mood than the film itself. Fuck yeah! Which leads us to the infamous prologue of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind to read that first now. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and the macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Very good. Okay, John Larroquette killed that shit, though. And for those of you who don't know, the prologue was voiced by John Larroquette, who my generation would know and love as the smart house Manhattan Municipal Court Assistant District Attorney Dan Fielding on NBC's Night Court. That pussy hound! We love Night Court. Uh, Rip and Peace, Marky Post, Ugh. and, um, oh shit, uh, Judge Harry Stone was yeah. his actor's name. Oh, fuck. He, it, I, I'm not gonna remember. I'm bad with names. <sighs> uh, but we, we, I genuinely love one of my favorite shows. Oh, yeah, Night Court was the shit. Okay, how iconic is this prologue? It's fucking one of the most iconic things in horror movie cinema. I'm not gonna say, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the movie stands in cinema, cinema history. The prologue, though, I won't go that far, but the horror movies, history, fuck yeah. I think it may be the best prologue in terms of horror movies and just letting you know You're the seriousness of the movie. It completely sets the tone. No tongue and cheek, just without, dead without, on. Without showing a single frame of footage. Like, you know, okay, this, this movie's tone is serious. I'm in for something that is intended to be serious. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be campy. This is something that is going to nail my ass to the fucking chair. And like you, when you first saw it, just bated breath and unable to move. Just, yeah. 
Weirdly enough, the only other time I've had that happen in a movie, like that that fear response to not moving, Jurassic Park in the theater the first really? time. Yeah. I was like frozen. I loved it. It was more campy. Like it was less viscerally terrifying, but I couldn't breathe. I was gripping my chair. Well, I mean, it, there's definitely awe to be had in that. In that yeah, film. first time for, when for it came out. For different reasons. Um, do you have any idea what John Larroquette was paid to be in this film? A pack of cigarettes and a cup of coffee, probably. I don't have no idea. All right. John had this to say about his involvement and compensation. I went into a studio, saw a piece of paper, read it for him, recorded it, said adios. He gave me a joint. I think that was payment, and that was that. That's, that's about right. Yeah. Uh, you got to think like how how much money this movie has made, and uh, John Le- John Larroquette has every time they have done an opening credit scrawl prologue, he's come back to do it. Absolutely, it probably shouldn't be uh, considering some yeah. of the the quality of some of the sequels, but it's really <clears throat> cool that he has done that throughout the history of the films. Like nice little rooted, uh, you know, family kind of atmosphere. It would still be funny if every time he did it, they only gave him a joint. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Or maybe. at least a joint, like kind of close pinned onto a check or something. Or maybe, maybe he's he's graduated from joints to blunts. But he's kind of blunt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to talk about the music really quickly. Uh, directly following the prologue, we have the grave robbing opening credits, which introduces the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sound. The meow. I can't. You hear it once, it's stuck. I can't say enough about this. In fact, one of the most interesting aspects of the film is our use of ambient noise rather than a traditional score. Yes. All right. So, number one, talk about the sound. How how iconic is just that that one particular sound? In- like you said it, and it's just now going through my head on a slow loop, and I'm starting to like get that little skin crawl I had. Like, it's one movie. Like, it doesn't scare me anymore, but it's still... It gives me access to those memories of the times when it did, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It puts me, it's still like, when we'll get to the, my favorite kill, oh, I think I hear something. I know it's coming, but still, fuck, it's going to get me. I'm going to I'm gonna say something uh, that somewhat contradicts what you say about it not being scary. <sighs> I, I for, for a while, had that sound as my ringtone on my phone, like <laughs> oh, my, no. my message yeah. tone. Oh, God. And... Throughout the day, like I'd be expecting it, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't do anything. Middle of the night. How? Yes, in yeah. the middle of the night when you're in a dead sleep, and you hear that shit. Like I could sleep through a thunderstorm, an earthquake. <laughs> I hear that, and that is like shit. The babe, terrifying. You're right. The the sound is still. It's unnerving. Go, it's unnerving. It, it gets to your lizard brain, and you just if you've seen the movie, know what to connect it to. Yes. So, do you think it's the most? Iconic horror movie sound? Sam, hold on, I'm trying to think. It'd be that or... Ch- 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 I mean, that's a good one. I mean, yeah, it'd be one of those. And honestly, it's probably number two to that. I'm not. I'm saying it's, it's more scary and effective than that. But if you're going to think iconic, iconic, you're you're probably yeah. you're probably correct in terms of iconic. But in effectiveness, I effectiveness, think, no, yeah, it's that, it's number that, one. Okay. Um, now. Most horror films, 
they, especially of, of the 80s, you know, they have like those synthesizer scores or, you know, classic horror films would have like a an orchestra kind of score. Do you think this movie made the right decision in not having? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's shot so matter of factly. The kills are so matter of fact. It's just so reality based. Reality doesn't have a score. You know, I go pee in the morning. I'm not hearing like little uh, flutes and birds twerping and stuff. It's nothing. It's the air, home of the air conditioning. Well, when we get rich, I'm going to have an orchestra play for me as I pee. Yeah, that's that's the that's, that's the a Ameri- ten year anniversary goal. Oh well, shit. <laughs> the, we're gonna have an American wasteland by then. How, how, how no, I, no, five more. You said fifteen. You're right. You're there. right. I apologize. We have five years. We'll have also, two good years. But here's the good thing about continuing that: pan flutes are not electric. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. Wow. You can have a mutant hunchback person <laughs> playing flute playing while you're dinglings uh, squirting juice down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I, I agree. I, I I don't think that this movie would have benefited in the least from having a traditional score. And I'm usually very very pro. Oh yeah, scores score. are great. Some scores can just make a movie, make or break a movie. They can Halloween take, is a Halloween. Hurt. Yeah, it just it'd be some guy in a white mask walking across the street with that ding 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 ding. You just fuck. Yeah, it's 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 unrelenting. But the the way in which this film is shot juxtaposed with just those the the sound of the generator and the that sound and just the. The hog noises, it's just, it's its yeah. so effective, and, and I don't know that it would work for any other film, but this is a special film, and it's, it's a, an island to itself. It really is. Now, everybody who worked on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre delivers, you know, basically, and, and they deserve some credit to some extent, but in terms of behind the camera, it's hard to argue who was ruling the roost, that being Toby Hooper, long career as a director, one of the pinnacles of my fandom in terms of like what really made great 80s horror films and uh, and beyond texas chainsaw massacre texas chainsaw massacre 2 eaten alive salem's lot the fun house poltergeist life force invaders from mars spontaneous combustion which yep. uh, which uh our good buddy brian brimmer the living legend the living legend uh i'm dangerous tonight which is a tv film <laughs> i fucking love that movie it's finally getting a, a, a blu-ray release the mangler which is a, a decent I'd, it's a good camp balls out crazy movie yeah, i mean if you like robert england i think you'll think there's he gives like a little little cripple guy with a face that's yeah, good stuff I did segments for John Carpenter's Body Bags and Mick Garris's Masters of Horror, and he did uh, an episode or two of Tales from the Crypt. He directed the music video Dancing with Myself by Billy Idol. I had no <laughs> fucking clue about that. It's about masturbation, people. It That's is. what it's about. Uh, he also did the pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares. Now, keep that one in your back pocket, <laughs> because uh, I'm going to bring it up a little later. All right, first question. Is Texas Chainsaw Massacre the greatest title in horror movie history? As certain legends have also said before me, absolutely. It tells you everything you need to know. Does the movie happen in Texas? Yes. Is there a chainsaw in the movie? Yes. Is there a massacre? Absolutely. 100% one-to-one ratio. Like, you're not going to accidentally see Texas Chainsaw Massacre and think you're getting Remains Today. Exactly. I mean... And if you do, you just need to stop watching movies or probably take a short walk off a long pier. It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And or a de- long walk off a short pier. 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Deep Throat. Two of the best movie titles. <laughs> Most effective movie titles ever. And it's funny because uh, Brian, Bryanson has uh, ties to both of them. Man, Maybe I, he helped title the movies. <laughs> Uh, I think he, he. I hope he helped audition the the ladies for these roles too. Like if you're gonna do CD shit, just go all in. I mean, yeah, just be be like the seventies. Fuck, what's his name? Uh, the big producer that went to prison. Shit. New Line. Oh fuck. Not New Line. Uh, uh, Dimension Fear, Films. Yeah. Miramax. Um, Harvey, Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Just be a proto Harvey Weinstein. Or or or, or kill yourself. I fuck you, Harvey. Fuck you, Harvey. Almost, almost said fuck you, Harvey Firestein. <laughs> fuck you, Harvey. Oh my god! Oh, what the hell did he do? Oh, he did what? <laughs> All right. the The genius title almost wasn't uh, with such titles as Head Cheese, Saturn, <laughs> and Retrograde, and Leatherface being options. <sighs> How important is the title of the film to its financial success? Oh. To, uh, Massively, massively. That's how you put butts in seats. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Fuck yeah, Becky Sue. Let's go to the drive-in. God damn it. He wearing a face. My mother, man, he got a chainsaw. Quit, quit trying to jack me off during the movie. This is good. I want to see this. No. Jack me off. Jack me off a little more quietly, Becky Sue. So Keep I it down. You're, you're drowning out the chainsaw noises <laughs> with your hand flapping. Speaking of ambient sound, those fucking... Uh, I still can't hear the sound of a chainsaw doing regular God, God-fearing God work that it's supposed to do without <laughs> thinking that motherfucker's going to turn around and chase me. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, title or no, we covered earlier about the inspiration of the film being yes. Gain and Elber Wayne Henley, but the big thing missing from the equation was the chainsaw. Hooper claims he got the idea for the weapon while standing in the hardware section of a crowded store. He had this to say, I looked down and there was a rack of chainsaws in front of me for sale. I said, if I start the saw, people would just part. They would get out of my way. So, chainsaw is a weapon. Pros and cons. I mean, it's not really effective as you'd think. Like, they're built, especially now, and you can't get away with it nowadays. They're too safe to even grind. The, the gears that grind up. You basically hit anything run the wrong way with the chainsaw. It's going to jam up. Joe Bob had it right when he's talking about the final chainsaw battle in uh, the farm movie, Farmer Kurt. Kurt oh, Motel, Motel Hell. Hell. Like, you know, it's not right, but... As an effective, viscerally upsetting horror, like the sound, it comes at you first. You hear it coming. You feel like it's, uh, it's probably the the most unrealistic aspect of this movie that's grounded in reality. I mean, let's. Uh, it's not the only murder weapon in the movie. It's not, and in fact, it's, it's the, least, the least effective. It's, it's the least used as well. But you have to look at it in this terms. It's the it's the most exploitational oh, yes. element of the film. The just chainsaw in the title that's that's gonna uh, garner people's attention. Butch and seats, man, and it's not effective in stealth. No, and it's not effective in execution because you have to, especially if you're trying to be stealthy, because you're gonna have to crank that thing every time you run up on somebody. I want to argue that point a little bit with again. We'll get to it in the victims. My one of my favorite horror movie kills of all time. Very quiet saying. Right, well, we'll get to it. However, I think the effectiveness of the chainsaw is not in its effectiveness in killing. It's a, its effectiveness in scaring. Oh yeah, scary because it's intimidating. It's well, it's it's the the abuse of the victims mentally 
before they're dispatched physically. Yeah. That's what makes it effective. It's just, it's the, it's the slow droning expectation of somebody getting, you know, crapped up, you know, rather than, yeah, than the actual nature of it happening. So I, I, I'm kind of half in, half out on Chainsaw. And it's For a, a movie, it's fucking great. I'm not gonna, Are you saying Pieces in a, isn't a masterpiece? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> okay. Uh, it would it would have been really easy to just take that title and make it perfectly enjoyable horror yeah. film, but Toby Hooper felt it necessary to inject Texas Chainsaw Massacre with a healthy dose of commentary of the troubled times of the 1970s. Hooper had this to say, I had been working on this idea of young people, college students, in isolation. We were going through a gasoline shortage. Sound familiar? Yeah. Sound so familiar? <laughs> uh, in the country at the time, people had uh, to queue up in their automobiles at gas stations, sometimes for miles. There was gas rationing, and I was hearing a lot of lies on television. Politically, the times were interesting. They were kind of amplified, so the idea came to me in the car of how to pull all these elements together. It came really quickly, the whole configuration of the characters, and the loop, and the loop, the story loops inside of itself. Now, we're not in exactly the same situation here in 2022, but... You know, gas prices are crazy, yeah. and there's a lot of internal panic about... Fuck about, you, Supreme Court. I just need to say that. Yeah, I said it. Uh, about things, but... Um, the fear it's of running, very tumultuous times. The, the fear of running out of gas is... It's it's almost... Made a whole movie franchise with Mad Max. Well, that's, that's, tr- <laughs> yeah. that's true, um, but how much it affects every facet of, of our lives... You know, things go up in price when gas prices go up because it costs more to deliver them from point A to point B. You know, if you have to commute to work, it, it, it almost de-incentivizes you from uh, from being able to, to take better paying jobs sometimes because it's not cost effective to get there. It, it's, there's a lot of domino effects. Brandon and I are going to start selling drugs instead of working our day jobs. So it's just it's just cheaper on gas. It's going to be a lot more comedic than gonna, Breaking Bad. Yeah, but still math. Totally math. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I have to interject here real quick with this. Oh, it's symbolism. This is one of the only instances in history where being a hippie yielded positive results. And yielded to tell. I'm going to make a movie that means something, not just a basic horror movie. He injected it with his meaning, which made it viscerally upsetting and great. Again, because he was a dirty hippie. <laughs> it, it, it worked out in the end. He, he was a hippie with an edge. We'll give him that. Uh, so was Charles Manson. Oh, <laughs> he wasn't that. Bad. I had to. <laughs> okay, okay. I apologize. You're right. You're right. I, my, my, so there were two times being a hippie turned my, out well. I'm just like my, my argument holds no weight, no <laughs> weight whatsoever. Oh fuck! Uh, despite its reputation, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is almost bloodless and only features one kill with a chainsaw. This was an intentional decision by Toby, uh, Toby, who attempted to get a PG rating. For- <laughs> you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark had a lot of fucked up stuff, but I could still see that maybe this will be PG. There's what kind of shit was he smoking, thinking that this movie would get a PG? It's a di- different world. A different world. Uh, he kept the on-screen violence mild, but overall, this backfired so affected. It made uh, it so much worse. Now, despite 
cutting and repeatedly submitting it to the MPAA, it received an X rating and over time the film was able to get an R rating and Toby Hooper just accepted the inevitable. So less is per, uh, less is more. Does this make the movie scarier? Yes. Yes, it absolutely does. Like I said, the most one of the first times I felt gulp, gut level visceral fear from a movie when Leatherface slams that door open, beats that dude in the head. Like, it's not even a lot. It's like one or two times. No, because, yeah. Anyway, and the dude's legs just kicking and blood pouring. It's not a lot of buildup. It's, I mean, it's boom, boom, boom. It's so, like, mm, yes. Yes, less is definitely more in this case. Sometimes more is more. Sometimes I want... uh Dead Alive, Peter Jackson, Dead Alive. Yeah, Sometimes I, I think that it, it's movie films are like uh, the seasons. You yeah, know, like there's a when, time for everything. When you're in the middle of winter, man, you want it to be summertime. You want that warmth, but when you get balls dripping hot, you're like, man, yes. I'm rich. So everything goes in cycles, and everybody wants something different at different times. But the movie works because of its stripped down nature and. We we both love Texas Chainsaw Massacre yes. too, and it works because the it's opposite. the complete opposite. <laughs> it's so good. Um, as visceral as Texas Chainsaw Massacre can be, there's also a fair bit of satire woven into the film. Uh, at what point did you realize that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a black comedy on top of a probably at like fifteen? I was like fifteen. Like this was not the first several times I saw it. It was only. Kind of, I guess, when I had to be in a masochistic mood to just really want to punish myself. And then in high school, you know, starting to smoke a little bit of the jazz cabbage and uh, <laughs> devil's lettuce and get into that. You kind of pick up on it then. There is one particular scene in the movie, and I, I was lucky enough to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the Tennessee Theater with a crowd oh. of people ranging in all ages with different backgrounds, ethnicities, and people who'd seen it a million times, people who'd never seen it before. And the older people did not find this funny. However, the people a little younger than me saw the comedy that was so blatant in the scene where they're at the the gas and go, and there's this character, this unidentified character who keeps coming up and washing the van off. And every time he thinks he's done, they keep talking. So he goes back over and starts. And that moment never resonated with me as funny as it is until I saw it with a live crowd. And I'm like, holy fuck, that is hilarious. You kind of telling me now is making I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. I never picked up on it as a comedic beat, but you're right. It, it It's... The kids are good for something. It's meant, it's meant to, to bring levity, but here, here's another uh, point of topic. That character, you never see him again. Is he a member of their family? Is he just a guy who works for fucked up people and doesn't know what they're doing? No idea. No idea. He's just a big big barbecue fan. He loves he barbecue in the first and chili in the second, so. That's true. Yeah, That's so true. They, they evolved culinarily. <laughs> it's a peppercorn. Hard them hard shell peppercorns. <laughs> uh, comedy or horror aside, the film 
is ultimately affected because of Hooper's background working in documentaries. Uh, he had this to say, it was my second feature and I'd shot a lot of documentaries and television commercials, so I had quite a lot of experience. I came into knowing exactly what I wanted and I had an excellent director of photography, Daniel Pearl, who was just out of film school. So I, so he and I got together and took it down. How important is the look of the film to its continued success? So important. The, the matter of fact, documentary style, the grainy fucking feel of it, just the, the sun bleached out, out exteriors, the murky ass, grimy interiors. Totally important. All right. Well, we did. We ended up getting a remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which does retain. I like it. It's okay. It's a pretty decent movie, but it's definitely a more cinematic. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cinematic endeavor, and I guess my question to you would be: Go back to '74, and say a studio produced this, and they took the exact same script, and they filmed it like a like an A list film. You know, like would, uh, wouldn't work. It's the same reason that the remake. So I know somebody who had never seen the original, saw the remake, like yeah, it's pretty good because there is that one really effect. You're so dead, and you don't even. He throws it open to burr that the first Leatherface reveal in that movie is golden. It's a good moment. It's not. Bam! Just <laughs> it's not because it's 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 it is cinematic. There's the score. There's the different camera angle. Ah! It would not be as effective. 100%. You, you can't shake my faith I, in that. I'm not going to disagree with you at all. I'll hit I, you straight I, on camera. Uh, I think that the, the look of this film is is not the entirety of why it works, but it is a huge, major It's chunk part of the, the sum is greater than the pieces kind of thing. Like, everything works together to create. You know... I use that term a lot when we're defending films like Popcorn, which is an episode yeah. I, I did. And that is definitely a movie where the sum of the parts outweigh the whole. Mm. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre... Wait, I mean the whole outweighs the, the sum of the parts is I, what I was seeing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah. But this is the complete opposite, where every part is iconic in a different way, and they all somehow complement each other without detracting. It's the Voltron of horror movies. The Voltron. <laughs> fucking high five on that. The Voltron of horror movies. We're, that's, we're trademarking that shit. <laughs> um, I want a Leatherface Voltron tattoo now. Um, film is a collaborative effort, obviously, <clears throat> and the combination of Toby Hooper and Daniel Pearl was a match made in heaven, or in this case, hell. So we got to talk about Daniel Pearl. Daniel Pearl wasn't a huge name then, but he's gone on to become an incredibly successful cinematographer. Let's just break this down. Every Breath You Take by The Police, Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Iron Maiden's Live After Death, Bon Jovi's Blaze of Glory, Van Halen's Pound Cake, Guns N' Roses, uh, Don't Cry, and November Rain. November, mm-hmm. November Rain is you know, basically a little movie. I Can't Dance by Genesis. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that by Meatloaf, which was directed by the the bane of my existence, um, the director of one good movie, The Rock, Michael Bay. Yeah, The Rock. Well, I, I, I just recently saw his newest one with the ambulance thing. It's pretty decent. Yeah. Like it, you, it, it was it was back back to the Rock era, Michael Bay. Okay, well I'll take your word for it. I have no intention of it's seeing it. It's streaming, dude. It's free. Shit, I got, I ain't got. You have so much. I, I'm, I am, asked to, asked to. I don't know. Tea I'm kettle, going, asked to tea kettle, asked to tea kettle. Sure, would lined up with stuff. <laughs> 
Um, he did Will Smith's Getting Jiggy With It. This is, you don't remember. Nah, 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 nah. This is pre-Oscar slap Will Smith when he was <laughs> on top of the world. He also uh, shot uh, Friday the 13th, 2009, and he did the Texas Chainsaw Master 2003. So he, he literally came full circle. Literally, yeah. Of, you know, shooting, uh, you know, the original and the remake, which are... Uh, Objectively, two of the better. That's why films. the first remake is the best of all the modern sequels. Uh, undeniably, yeah. undeniably. And it's hard to talk about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre without talking about the man who filmed it. But there are somewhat of a debate online of who deserves more credit uh, to the look of the film, Hooper or Pearl. So, who deserves credit? Is it is it Hooper, whose background is te- is uh, documentary documentaries, or is it Daniel Pearl, who actually? physically shot the film. I think this is another instance of the whole outweighing the sum of the parts. You have two good things that come together and make it. There's a Reese's peanut butter of film. You know, you oh take your chocolate and peanut butter. You got your you peanut get, butter in my chocolate. You I'm saying I like, I, 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 I wasn't there on set. So I am in no way. So, but I can only imagine cause I've seen other Toby Hoopy movers movies, Toby Hoopy movers, Without him, that are still great. And, you know, I've seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 and uh, 2009, and they're not great. You know, I mean, they were okay. So, I mean, put a gun in my head. I'm going to say Hooper was the more important. But I believe in this instance it was like two people coming together to create Whoa. something magic. That's a, the, the beast with two backs on film. Oh, my God. Sounds like wet macaroni noises. <laughs> um, here's the thing about film. It, because it's such a collaborative effort, it is really hard to assign who is the guiding force at, in certain aspects. But when someone fails, it, it's more evident yes. in like who is to blame rather than the success. But I'm gonna I'm gonna air with you. I think because of Toby's background <coughs> in documentaries, I think he's ultimately the, yeah. the one who deserves. It's not more, a, more slightly more credit. It's not like a like a director like Orson Welles or Stanley Kubrick where you know they controlled every aspect of everything. That's true. So, you know, yeah, again, I'm going to err on the side of safety, but I say they're both great. Now, Toby unfortunately passed away in 2017. Yep. You know, we're you know, not we're, that not that far removed from we're his passing. Old, all our heroes are dying. <laughs> Before we move on, I want to highlight one of my favorite things Toby ever ever did, and that's the pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares, <laughs> yes. which our buddy Mick Strong worked on. Now, I I knew how Mick felt about Toby, and he's told me this story, you know, fifty times. Those of you who are, are ever graced by the presence of Mick Strong, great pre- storyteller. He's a great storyteller. Be prepared to uh, spend a lot of time hearing the same stories over and over again. Um, I haven't quite hit my limit of when Mick's going to become annoying to me. Never. But, uh, well, we'll never say never. <laughs> I like giving Mick a hard time, but um, he gave me a hilarious quote. It, it's a it's a doozy. Toby had a brilliant mind hooked up to a stupid mouth. <laughs> I didn't quite understand this, but not long ago I watched the Fun House on on Blu-ray String Factory Edition, and there's a, a commentary track, and and. Usually, I don't listen to commentary tracks that have a guy that is sort of stewarding it because I want to hear unfiltered, from, unfiltered yeah. from like the, the 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 horse's mouth. And then I realized why they had a guy on there 
sort of guiding guiding this because Toby is not good at talking. He's he's got a southern drawl about him, and you can tell like he he has it in his head what he wants to say, it but it but didn't it, come out right. It does not coming out in the in a fluent way, and he he sort of talks. He he says a lot, but he doesn't say a lot. If that means yeah, I get that. So knowing Mick like I know Mick, I I instantly know the conflict that they had. Mick talked too much. And <laughs> and Toby and Toby spoke a lot but didn't say a lot and and Mick is a person who wants you know give me definitive d- definitive d- details on what you want and um, Mick does a great impression of Toby Hooper I'd love to actually get him to do it on the podcast sometime but he's he's the it's compliment. But it's a backhanded one about Toby. I hey, I fucking love that uh, pilot episode. It is the true definition of so bad it's good. <laughs> because uh, because of the constraints for broadcast television in the early, late, or mid-80s. I love, late 80s. I love that when Freddie goes on trial, he's wearing his hat uh, yeah, and his sweater. In a cage. Because that's how you know it's him. Yeah, that's the only way because you could if you, know. if you put Robert England in a suit, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> People are stupid back then. Now, Toby may have been the director of the film, but the one directing the madness on screen, that's a completely different story. We have Jim Seedow as the cook. God. All right. He was in Hot Wire with George Kennedy, who was in The Naked Gun with Leslie Nielsen, who was in Prom Night with Jamie Lee Curtis, who was in Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. He's wearing the shirt. That's a long road, but we got there. I knew we would. I, I never, you know, doubt. Oh, man. Uh, he also reprised his role as the cook in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He's probably the second highlight of that film. Oh, yeah. I mean, Chop Top. Chop like, Top, edges yeah. him out just a, just a bit. In my opinion, the movie the movie crime of the century is that Jim only has six acting credits to his name. Because of this, I thought it might be fun for each of us to fantasy book uh, and cast him in a, like a seventies or eighties horror film that he would have been gr- greatly benefited him and vice versa. So, Tony, what's your pick? Okay, I was telling him before we started recording that the original casting for this character is perfect. This will not improve the movie. I would just be interested in his take. The not comedic side, the, when he gets dark. The preacher from Poltergeist 2. Oh my god. That sprung immediately to mind. Now, the guy who actually did it was this big experimental theater guy literally dying of cancer. You're not going to get better than him. But I would have just said just be like a different take. Because he could do the, the friendly, appable kind of... And then just that turning on a dime... Kind of thing. So that's what immediately came to mind. And wow. as as a as an alternate replacing Mickey Rourke in nine and a half weeks <laughs> with as an erotic movie with Kim Bassinger. One of those two. I I think the the sexual chemistry they would have had <laughs> undeniable. There's no way that movie could get an R rating. It's that, true. That's, that's, It'd have been X. That, that would have been X. Not even NC seventeen. <laughs> that's full penetrative penetrative <laughs> sex because she could not have resisted. No, him. nobody could. No, and nobody did. <laughs> My choice, and this one has a little bit of provenance because there's already a connection. It's a movie directed by Toby Hooper, so he's already got the in. So he would have been somebody yeah. that would have been fresh in his mind. And that would have been 1981's The Fun House, which I just talked about. That was another thought. And I would have him play the the, the father of the monster. 
you know, because he, he plays, plays every other. Yeah, know. he's three characters in the movie. He's the carnival barker. He's you know, but I would yeah. have had him play them all. But I think he could have got to really ham up like the oh, carnival yeah. barker stuff, but then really play the seriousness of the father. And, and I, I think he could have been really good in that. And that's not taking anything away from the actor who's actually in the film. Oh yeah, because I love the fun house. In fact, that's one we're going to have to do. Oh, absolutely, eventually. But Jim C. Dow deserved to have a bigger career in film than he actually had. What we don't know is he did a lot of, like, underground, uncredited, like, custom-made pornos. That's why he was busy in his off hours. Hmm. He wore a mask. Uh, <laughs> he did a lot of stuff in Tijuana. They know him as El Schlango down there. <laughs> Suck on my hard shell peppercorns. <laughs> uh, uh, Jim made his on-screen debut in a film called The Wind Splitter from 1971. He plays an overbearing father uh, to a son who leaves town to seek fame and fortune in Hollywood. Splitting wind. Exactly. <laughs> it's a fart porn. <laughs> Hard shell peppercorns give you gas. So it all, it all, it all wraps all, around. It yeah. all ties together. Uh, once the son achieves his dream, he's invited back to his home to basically be a you know, hometown hero. And there's family conflict, blah, 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 blah. And it's probably a fine movie, but the real importance of The Wind Splitter was there was a chance meeting between Toby Hooper, who had a small acting role in the film, and Jim Seedow. So fast forward a couple years, Toby was looking to cast his magnum opus, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he offered the role of the cook to Jim. Now, despite Jim's obvious talents, he wasn't sold on his ability to get into the murderous headspace that required to be this, you know... Just fucked weird. up maniac. Yeah. So Jim had this to say, I spent hours trying to figure out what I was going to do, how I was going to play this crazed cook. It. I didn't know what kind of director Toby Hooper was. Fortunately, he was a very fine director. He knows what he wants, and he gets it out of you. I would have played it together differently uh, if he hadn't told me what he wanted, and it wouldn't have been as good. So there's a different point of yeah. view than Mick had. Um and I think that might have to do just a difference of geography. I'm not saying just geography. It's also two different aspects. Mick is a production designer. That's he true. He's concrete things. Acting is open to interpretation. You can, it is a much more mercurial, like ephemeral thing that's not set. So maybe he could kind of give him in bounds. It's like, Mixing like, hey, how do you want this set up? He's like, oh, just imagine you're in a dark room with a, 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 you know, he's instead of like, oh, I need, you know, real dark, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you're, he's needing concrete answers. You're probably, you're probably right. But it, it does go to show yeah. that, that he was good with actors. Oh, yeah. Um, which leads us into Jim C. Dow's performance. Um, <laughs> talk or talk about Oh, it. my God. When she finally makes it to the, to the gas station and you think she's again, Never saw this movie before. Didn't know the infamous dinner scene. Like, oh, thank God. No! Just just heartbreaking. Just terrifying. He's just like picking at her with the damn stick. That was supposed to be balsa wood, I think. If I'm not mistaken, but they'd replace her. So that was really hard. Like, so um, disturbing. It's like he's like me, reluctant. And it. you see the evil come like, hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Fucking devastating. Yeah, evidently he was not fond of of being as cruel no. as as they they needed him. What to a wimp! Be. But but he's so good at he's it. He's so good. I think that hesitancy honestly leads to because you know you you even it, on film you're seeing the character get in character. I think it's the dichotomy. 
actually of the public persona versus the yeah, family. Yeah, it, it sees he has a public face, and then the, you know, the the once the veneer of society is torn away, there's the real fucked up person that is actually there. That's that's applicable yeah. for probably most people to some degree. But it's it's really highlighted in this film of like public perception as absolutely opposed to who you are behind you know closed doors. Is there another actor who could have done a better job in this than he did? I mean, I'm gonna say no, but let me let me let me take a second and genuinely try to think. Well, while you're I doing, think a Dennis Hopper, Dennis Hopper might have done. Well, pretty I think good. That there there were better technical actors, actors but. But he had. I want to say no. He has a quality okay. about him that none of them, I don't think, would have brought to the role. Dennis Hopper is not fuzzy friendly. Like you know, like this guy seemed nice. He's oh, the, she's saved. He's the Lord of the Harvest. He's the Lord of the Harvest. <laughs> <laughs> now the cook is a wonderful combination of folksy and oddly trustworthy. And harmless he, is the yeah, word. You think he's harmless, but he becomes this unhinged lunatic. Yeah. So you touched on it. The, the scene where he puts Sally in the gunny sack. This is another moment that is the first time you watch it is is fucking horrifying. But I watch it now. Like, this shit is funny because he takes such glee and like and just, he's not even hitting her hard yeah, at first. He's <laughs> but the funniest scene, the funniest scene in the movie to me is he goes to all the trouble. He gets her in the truck and he goes back to realize, oh man. I gotta lock up because crazies will come into my <laughs> into my gas station if I don't shut the door. Absolutely, it's, it's little things like that that really add to the character. It, it's it's a both a mental situation of a the understanding of a character of like finding almost a moral justification in what they're doing, but at the same time, it has, it's also very funny. So I I don't know I we like, have different turn it's it's funny hmm not funny ha or funny strange not funny ha ha like I, the old SNL sketch I find it funny ha ha because it's because the movie saps so much humor out of me when I'm watching it <laughs> that like you know fucking Leslie Nielsen could come and give his Shirley or I I am serious and don't call me Shirley thing. And I'm still not gonna laugh because everything else is so I see what you mean. Yes, it is, but it's more like oh, that's crazy. It kind of adds to the creep factor well, for me. Yeah, and you're not you're not wrong, and I think that's what makes it creepy is because in his head he doesn't see him as self yeah, as the normal, villain. Yeah. It's just like no, I'm just I'm a small I'm, business I'm, owner. I'm bringing home dinner. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. We'll touch on is this family cannibalistic or not, and as we continue on, I just think that it's it's such a a great scene because he finds such gleefulness in. And just prodding this poor, poor woman. I it's perfect. Yeah, no, absolutely. Perfect. That's what makes it creepy, yeah. One of the more debated aspects of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the family tree. There's these three maniacs now as a kid. I took it as gospel just because no one told me otherwise that the cook was the father and Leatherface and the hitchhiker were his sons because they talk about grandpa. So I'm thinking in my head he's a little older than them. This is yeah. this makes the most logical sense. However, there is a large portion of the internet believes that they're actually all brothers. So, is the cook the father, or are they all brothers? As a kid, I would have said the same thing. Now, Cook's got real incel vibes. <laughs> I could see him being the oldest brother no, and take a charge. We've already talked about he his. Fucked. I'm saying the cook, not the actor. This is a character versus, versus actor enough, thing. Fair enough, fair enough. 
That actor was fucking on the reg. He fucked up shooting schedules. He was getting so much strange. <laughs> but no, like seriously, I could see, at, like, and again, this is with the hindsight of scene part two, which they definitely have that like older brother. You know, you sound like Three Stooges vibe. No, the Three Stooges aspect. Yeah, is it's very, very intentional. Yeah, but uh, and like I could like now it, I kind of feel the more brother vibe. I don't think it actually ultimately matters because they all have sort of their family duties and whether he's a father or an older brother, his, his role is sort of the authoritarian, the one who's in charge. So elder brother, father, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. He's the patriarch of the family. Exactly. I, I just, from in my head, I think it would be an interesting case study to literally have like the, saw your family yeah. tree kind of laid out because there's so many branches to the tree. It's hard to keep up with like who's who. I want to see what. them tie part three and all that shit. Yeah. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. We <laughs> love part three. No, no. Part. Automatically got it. That was grandpa's secret side family. So when they got taken out in part two. So grandpa, he does fuck. Yeah. He, grandpa fucks. Oh, grandpa fucks. My, my grandpa had a lot of money and had a lot of like sugar, sugar babies. And knocked them up and, and with his poison seed. And he didn't even inspire them to grow up evil. It's just his his genes were so powerful. So he went to live with the alternates and that's how he yeah. I'm just I'm that thinking tied it in. I'm thinking of fucked up scenarios in my head where <laughs> grandpa is being helped. To, I, I can see it getting hard too. I it's it's happening. It's happening, folks. <laughs> I'm about to tip this table over. <laughs> uh, Jim is the only actor who returned for the sequels. Yeah, and he's a huge highlight of part two, in my opinion. But he seemingly fuck you, Charlie. He seemingly killed off in the finale, which is a huge shame, in my opinion. Do the sequels part two would they have benefited from him being involved? You mean part two on? Yeah. Or, I mean, like part, part three. three. Part With three, what part they three. were going for, definitely not the vibe of part three. Part three was trying to be like a 90s edgy movie. And it's great. I like it. I will almost say great. It's good. It's really good. We've, had, we've done our episode yeah, on it. There's a lot of solid shit to it. But I don't think he'd fit in that. I think he might have been a good wheelchair dude for the remake. The guy with no legs. Get up here, boy. Bring it. You're so dead, you don't even know it. I think he'd been great in that. I think it might have been a little distracting because we already know him. Well, I'd have been like, you know, that's it. But as as unpopular as Next Generation is, I think that would have been the perfect movie. Yeah, I think that's the only one. Fuck, I remember watching that movie. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, because... It is a definite hate, hate, a little love for how far they went out. I hate it. I don't like it. But at the same time, it goes so balls out, you have to respect it. I'd, it's not a, it's not an enjoyable watch, but it is a watch that is so interesting because it's so wrong. <laughs> and it's a weird piece of, like, cultural artifact of, like, two major A-list actors, <laughs> like... Boy, I talk about getting them at the right time. Well, they they they, they, they delayed both, release. They <laughs> both broke right after that, and they they recut the movie to to give them more to do. And, yep, and uh, retitled it. And hey, released it. I'll talk a lot of shit on that movie. Matthew McConaughey went for it. I hate Matthew McConaughey, but if I'm gonna watch a Matthew McConaughey performance, that's not in you know Magic Mike. 
Don't lie. I have not seen Magic Mike. I've seen both of them. Okay, well, that's your cross to bear, my friend. It really fucked up movie. The first <laughs> one's just so sad. Anyway. Uh, the cook may call the shots of the chainsaw-wielding Texans, but even he has a hero. And that hero is a very old character played by a very young man. We have yes. John Dugan as Grandpa. Now, he was also in Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the Next Generation, but he plays a paramedic. Yeah. Um, that ending doesn't make a lot of sense. But he did come back to the role of Grandpa in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D. Um, huge waste of him, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, now, John grew up in Indiana, and he began his acting career in Chicago, Illinois, where he would perform in several theatrical productions. During one such production, writer Kim Hinkle just happened to be in attendance and approached the 20-year-old John about taking the role of a 113-year-old grandpa. Grandpa doesn't have a lot of screen time, but he is a focal point of my favorite scene <laughs> in, the entire, yeah. in the entire history of... Of film. This is my favorite scene of all time. I, I, there, is, there is nothing even close. Nothing has affected me more than the infamous dinner scene. So, all right, where do you rank the dinner scene and the, just the history of horror? All time. Number one, hands down, because you know, and without knowing any of the background, any of the behind the scenes, anything like that, it is looking into madness. The family living and breathing there, fucking chick, just Sally, fucking losing her fucking mind, facing hell. This is, ev it's everything Rob Zombie wants all his real fucked up horror movies to be, like Devil's Reject. It's the, it's the core of what made Rob Zombie movies, Rob Zombie movies. Although I'm dying to see the monsters. It, it is like the, it's exaggerated. But it is the perfect example of holding a microscope or like a you know magnifying viewing glass. magnifying glass glass up to the evil that men do. Yeah, because Charles Bronson, love it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the Amish. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that. Okay, yes. And. As we progress in horror, or actually as we regress, uh, going back to like, you know, the, the, the 1920s and 30s horror films, a lot of them have sort of paranormal overtones, or there might be like a crime noir kind of element, but when Ed Gein did the shit he did, he sort of crossed a line that it breaks the paradigm of what people think about the American dream is. Yeah. And since then, it seems like the it, literally the, the mouth of hell opened and we're able to see that the person you know, standing next to you or sitting next to you, the person on the train or on the bus or, you know, in the, in the mall across from you, that person could be a murderer. That person might be crazy. That person may do harm to me or you for no reason. This scene is terrifying on a that level, but it's also terrifying just in the way it's shot. Nothing comes close to this scene for me. I and I know we the Exorcist. I wish I think both of us agree is the scariest movie of all time. Yeah, but this to me is the scariest scene of Fuck all. Fuck yes, just and. 
bunch of amateur know nothing actors just just selling it. Just living. They went insane under the hot lights and rotten meat and just. We're, we'll get to it in okay. just a moment. Um, we have to talk about the comedy of failures in this because as fucked up as this is, there is there is a twinge of comedy that comes out in that, and um, the comedy of failures is the attempts to feed Grandpa. <laughs> I'm trying to. He he so desperately wants just a taste of blood and they give him the hammer and he's too feeble and, and, and it's the it's the reactions of the other characters that makes it scary. Because yeah. th- they so gleefully want to see their grandfather bash you know, a ba- fucking skull in. Yeah, and, and spill blood for the fun of it. But it he's hilarious because he's unable to do anything. He, can, he can't even grip hard enough to hold, you know, the the hammer. So it is a weird mix, but this is a scene. It's the it, epitome of black comedy. It yes. is dark as fuck, but yeah, it is undeniable. That is definitely something I've always picked up on. Well, even the first time I yeah. saw the movie, like I, I think that I, I, I found, I found the comedy in it, but yeah. it's still because, because you're laughing and because it's still uncomfortable. I think that actually makes it yeah, more powerful. Because it adds to the insanity of the moment. Because insanity, it's, it's not just fear; it's losing yourself in the fear, finding humor. Well, oh, fucking perfect. The uh, a perfect example. It's a film that both you and I are, are well aware of. Um, a film called Antichrist, directed by <laughs> Lars von Trier, the happiest director on earth. Lars von Trier, in the opening of this film, shoots a scene, and it's. Beautiful. The cinematography is gorgeous. You know, soft glow around the edges, and you you have a windowsill, and there's snow is falling as a man and a woman make love in in a shower, and slowly a child walks in and falls out ah, of a window. Beautifully, beautifully and falls. It's the juxtaposition of the beautiful cinematography against the awful subject matter that makes it effective because you're tricked. Into feeling like warm impressed. inside, yeah, comfortable, and ugh. and that's what this scene is doing, because there is a comedic element, and you want to laugh, but you can't because it's so fucked up. That's what yeah, makes this. Scene that's a that's a good impact. parallel between the absolutely. Also, as a quick side note, Antichrist is the only movie Brandon's ever been like, dude. I'm not saying this to challenge you. I'm really saying, don't ever watch Antichrist. Don't. Don't ever watch Antichrist. <laughs> just don't. It's not the gore you hear about. I mean, that's bad. It's just the... It is definitely the whole is greater than the sum of its, its parts on your soul. It is a cinema, cinematic assault on your soul. Yeah, definitely. And I lost. I have no soul now. <laughs> I could watch a puppy die and not shed it. I'm just playing. <laughs> no, <Please>. um, <laughs> the Toby Hooper had this to say about the genesis of this infamous table scene. I had an experience in a restaurant one time and there was a huge trolley with beef being carved up and I just transposed different images onto it. Like what if there was a nice little cow there with a bow tie and a knife (laughs) carving up humans? It always disturbed me. It became part of the psychology of the film. Now this incident led not only to the creation of this infamous scene, but it also led Hooper to become a vegan. 
He just he he just damn dirty hippies swore off meat. But he's not the only one. Reportedly, Guillermo del Toro, after seeing this film, became a vegetarian as well. Meat obviously plays a huge part in the film, but it's not blatant if the family are consuming humans. So here's the debate: Are the family cannibals in the first film? My thing is the the barbecue meat aspect of their little shop. I didn't see no fucking livestock. Not much fucking livestock at that place. Take that. I, I don't think they're cannibals as a main source of sustenance, but as a fuck you to society. Like, they're dying to give Grandpa, you know, bitch blood. Uh, I'm just, you know, there's definitely cannibals. Do they exist? Well, Grandpa and, does consume yeah, blood. He sucks the blood. They're not cannibals in the sense of, like, the remake where, like, they, like, Definitely, like they had been the sequel. The only two good scenes in the the prequel to the remake was the dinner scene where they're brushing and whatever you know. And it's definitely human meat. But in that one, I don't think they're. I think they're they dabble in cannibalism. I I think that it's it's almost not important. It's not important. It's just something they do. They you know. It's blatant in the sequel. Like oh. they they definitively hard uh, shell pepper. One of my favorite things to do is get a big old bowl of chili, soup it up, and just watch that movie eating chili. But I don't know that it was ever thought of. Thought even, of. Probably. I, it's one of those things that was just like we have Grandpa sucking blood. Like there's context clues. So ultimately, yes, they're cannibals. But I don't think it was necessarily intended for them to be consuming yeah. human flesh as a sole source of substance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Do you think Texas Chainsaw Massacre did for eating meat what Jaws did for swimming or Psycho did for taking showers? Pretty close. I mean, fuck of Cordy. If you ask Toby Hooper, Guillermo del Toro, yeah, but me, like, no, not really, but it's up there in that kind of influence. I wouldn't put it quite on that high because I've, has it has it ever has it ever affected your desire no, to eat meat? It no. hasn't me either. I, so. I, I, there's one time that I think they have kielbasa on the table. I'm like, man, I'm gonna make a kielbasa. <laughs> I pause the movie. Again, I like doing fucked up shit. Like I'm gonna have kielbasa while during the dinner scene and <laughs> the chili watching part two. But uh, no, not for me at all. No, obviously both of you are carnivores, and we're haven't been persuaded to become vegans, but the. Horror of the scene is undeniable, oh, and yeah. it's because of the perfect storm. It's just the insanity of feeding Grandpa, the unbearable heat the cast endured, the hyper-realistic production design, and the stench from the real rotting yeah. meat on the table that makes this just... It made everybody loony. Yeah. Absolutely loony. So, let's break it down. We've got unbearable heat for 36 straight hours. That's how long it took them from beginning to end to shoot this scene. And they blocked the windows out because it was supposed to be nighttime, but you still have the heat from yeah. outside. And and because Bob Burns, who we'll talk about a little later on, they they wanted realism. So there's a real hog, you know, on the table and like that stuff is degrading and people haven't showered and they only have one costume and they're just sweating in it. This sounds miserable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you hear a lot of times actors talk about, oh, the hardships of being on set. No, that, that'll that give them. That scene, I'll give them. Um, the, the cast had to vomit constantly. They had to, that one of the reasons that, yeah. you know, that took so long is just, you know, all right, 
Cut. All right, I'm going to go vomit for two minutes. I'll be Cute back. break. <laughs> Which, at that point, is like just vomit in the corner. It adds to the production design. Honestly, yeah, they should. Um, also, because everybody became so loony because of the heat, um, some safety lines were crossed in terms of like the interactions between the cast. Yeah. But the scene where they cut Marilyn's finger, they actually cut yep. her finger and it wasn't done intentionally. It's just everybody's so exhausted that, you know, trying to get the scene done. So, so she literally bled for this movie in, in more ways than one. Ed Neal had this to say about the hormone fil- filming conditions during the dinner scene. Filming that scene was the worst time of my life. And I had been in Vietnam with people trying to kill me. So I guess that shows how bad it was. Damn. That, I don't think he's being hyperbolic either. No, it doesn't sound like it. He, he intentionally gave you an example. Like, no. Um, you can tell your story about drinking with him. I, I won't go too deeply into Just real it. Just but, but I, I, why his uh, place in Valhalla? After after Frankencon, I was I was exhausted and I I wanted to eat desperately, and so I'm looking around for you know the bar because uh, I figured they'll have bar food, and didn't realize that you know basically you order food from the kitchen and they yeah. just de- deliver it to the bar, but that's beside the point. So go up there, and this is like you know, five in the afternoon and John Dugan's there and John Dugan has already drank like probably like 10 plus beers and he is not even buzzed. This Dugan (laughs) motherfucking drink. So I'm sitting at the bar and we're like casually chatting and stuff. And I had probably five or six beers and got I, started, get a little buzz I, I started getting buzzed. And at that time, he'd probably drank another 10. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I I had a little a little moment with John Dugan, which I'd met him before. But, you know, th- th- this was a this was a different environment. And while there were other events going on, I, I got a more intimate moment with uh, John John Dugan. Um, Mick was supposed to be there, but Mick bitched out and decided he was going to drive all the way home rather than sleeping in a comfortable hotel room and hanging out with his best buddy. Fuck you, Mick. You I just, fart. Brandon also told me that, like, uh, I can't remember what led to it. And the guy saying like, you know, I was in Texas chain, the original Texas chainsaw massacre. My place in Valhalla is secure. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he's a good dude. He's a really good dude. Um, Okay, so we can't talk about this scene really without talking about the visual quality of it. Uh, the set pieces, without talking about them, would just be a crime. And the man who vividly brought hell to life, literally, is a guy by the name of Bob Burns. He did art design on there. You're going to see some commonalities here. The hills have eyes. Tourist trap. Let's just cut to the chase. Most of this shit in the movie looks real as hell. It is, but he also did some other movies that are a little less realistic, uh, The Howling and Reanimator. Can you name another movie that uses its set design more effectively than Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Hmm. I'm going to take like 10 seconds to really try. No, fuck no. No, that dinner scene seals it. Everything, the, the isolated location seal it. The fucking house. The shitty roadside gas station. Everything works to make that movie 
more effective. You could say like, um, I really like some of the, the hell designs in Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Yeah. There, you know, there's, you could say, there's a lot of stuff that looks better, but using it as effectively, Cube. That would be the only movie I hold up there with it, like that uses the set as effectively. No, I mean that is that is that's, a, that's the, movie. the whole intention is it, but but as as a movie where the the sets and locations and scene you know uh, aren't aren't the an integral part of the story. No, takes a chance on Masker. and Deep Throat, obviously. <laughs> The throat was the best, yeah. the best set of all. Um, but the thing that makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in particular, this scene so effective is that the bone art and that stuff, that those are real yes. bones. That's not somebody meticulously crafting something. No, that is skinned bones they got from uh, either a deli or they got some from like the Humane Society. But they, they went around and like anytime they dumped... Uh, carcasses on the side of the road, like the the armadillo at the very beginning yeah. of the movie. That's an actual armadillo. He taxidermied that thing back together so they could have an armadillo on the side of the road. Those things add such a realistic quality to the film. And even though it may not click that it's real, I think in your gut you feel yeah. it. You know, you feel that it's real because it is. It's kind of like the difference. Props. Versus real stuff is kind of like the difference between like CGI and practical effects. Even if they're really good, you know it. You know it's not real. This especially, you know that it's fucking real. All right. All this insanity, and we still haven't gotten to the most iconic character of the film. In the Mount Rushmore of slasher superiority, it would be a crime punishable by death to omit Texas's most Famous chainsaw-toting citizen. We have Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface. Fuck, one of the creepiest... Take the, Taking the whole franchise and how they progress the character, it's a pretty, pretty legendary slasher character. That performance in that movie is probably the scariest fucking being alive. And I think the reputation of Leatherface is entirely from this movie. Yes. Not the same. Yeah, he did such a fucking good job that, like, I think three quarters of why this movie was so infamously terrifying falls on him and his performance. Even in the dinner scene when he's not ripped, but when he has that fucking chainsaw. When he is just running balls out after that bitch, just losing his fuck about you, the little chainsaw dance at the end. Horrifying. And it doesn't end with like him getting caught and captured and justice being done. No, he's still out there and about. So my little, again, my little childhood brain, maybe mom was right. Maybe that, I'm going to hell if I like. And that's why films made in the 70s are the best films ever made because sometimes the fucking villain would not be brought to justice yeah. and it left you with a an unsettling feeling leaving the drive-in or the movie theater. I think that's just great. Let's break down his accomplishments. He was in The Demon Lover, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, which we've already Hell yeah. um, verbally masturbated about. Campfire Tales, Mosquito. I, I love Mosquito. It is a that's a corny ass movie, yes. but it holds a nice place in my heart. He was in Freak Show, Replicator, which is one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> it, it is. I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, Replicator is a movie where they women, if women are horny, they turn into alligators. 
that's something like it's something stupid like that. How are you not saying that's the greatest movie? I apologize. It is <laughs> uh, Brutal Massacre, a comedy, which I actually have here in the Black Lodge, somewhere over here on the the left side of the screen, uh, autographed by uh, the director. Uh, he was in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D, not as Leatherface. Yeah, yeah, and he was in Death House. That was his final appearance. Finally watched that. Here it is. Worth a watch. It's not a great movie, not a but great it's, it's it's something you have to. It's obligatory. Yeah, it's it was the Expendables of horror, basically. Yeah. You know, bringing all the the iconic actors and characters together. Uh, a lot of roles in film could have been filmed by you know, filled by other people, but in my opinion, Gunner is the only person who could have played Leatherface. Gunner had this to say about the role: "I never thought I had it in me. Just before production began." I sat in a drugstore. I I had nothing at all planned for the summer. Heard about the casting call and decided to on a lark to do it. I was 26 years old. I was just out of graduate school when I met Hobie, uh, Toby Hooper and Kim Hinkle. They asked me three questions before they hired me. Number one, are you a violent person? Number two, are you crazy? When I replied, no, not more so than normal, they finally asked, can you do it? Sure, it's easy. Now, despite what Gunner says there, he wasn't initially interested in the role of Leatherface at all and actually turned it down because of the nastiness of the plot. However, after his friend Marilyn Burns was cast, Sally, uh, she managed to persuade him to take on the role. Gunner had this to say about the character. They defined the character for me as someone who was severely mentally disturbed. The idea that we're... There was nothing really behind the mask, and that's how the character was created. You never unmask him like Darth Vader, because if you were to take the mask off, there would be nothing there. That's why when you see him wearing different faces at times, that's how he presents himself. But killing was the only thing he knew. Now, with Gunner on board, he made the decision to treat the role as three-dimensional, uh, not just as a brooding killer, um, he tried to add a lot of flavor to it and make it, you know, more dynamic. But he went to a school for the mentally handicapped, and he watched how they moved and he listened to how they talked to get a feel for the character. And he, that's how he basically created it. There are two aspects of the character I want us to discuss. Number one, so does because of the mental deficiencies, does it make Leatherface sympathetic? Or does it make him scarier? <sighs> Sequels, sympathetic. This movie, a terrifying range monster of, of with no no human emotions. So, I mean, it's his family. His family, he'll like, you know, even the cook, man, who did this to the and all that shit. It, to me, it's like I said, Gunnar Hansen's Leatherface is one of the scariest fucking killers in horror movie history and I'd come at me with somebody scary. I'm not I'm not going to disagree with you but I do think that there is an element of sympathy for him because he's terrified throughout the movie. Yeah, he is. He's terrified he's going to lose her, get caught, get in trouble with the family. I get all that and it just makes him scary. I understand that there's a sympathetic element. I just don't feel that sympathy because ever since I was a kid <laughs> He's in the woods. I'm going to hear a chainsaw kick on one day, and that's how I'm going to die. Well, let me play devil's advocate. You're in, you're in a farmhouse, living your best life, wearing the face of presumably somebody who did you wrong. You know, 
preparing dinner or whatever, and people just keep walking in your fucking house. Not not even like uh, um, the first kill is complete. The first two kills are completely justified. I mean, they broke into the house. They're, it's when he goes out looking. That's when the problem. No, I know well, it's horrible. It, but at that point, I mean, what would you do? I, mean, I wouldn't murder with a sledgehammer <laughs> or hang up a innocent young woman on a meat hook. Yes, but you also have full mental faculties. That's true. And I worked with the uh, developmentally challenged people for almost a decade, and I don't think any of them would either. So he has no sympathy. It's all kill instinct for him. And that's probably, honestly, well, but na- nurture over nature. Well, that's what I was going to yeah, ask. Yeah, he's trained to kill. I get that. He's, he's like a, you know, pit bulls are not inherently bad. But, but you can but, turn them bad. But yes. people who, you know, raise them to be, you know, shithead dogs. I mean, and that's, sort of, yeah. that's sort of what I think has happened here. But it's still, it doesn't, there's no... Sympathy that mitigates the raw, visceral terror of Gunnar Hansen's leather face running full tilt. Like, this is, he's not slow walking. He's not even normal walking. Like, this motherfucker is a pit bull off its lead coming to kill. Now, in, in universe, what you said is correct. In practice, however, Gunner had to run slower because Sally couldn't run for shit. And if you watch the movie, there's actually points where both he and Ed Neal have to drastically slow yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, like especially that final little chase down the drought. Because yeah. she just she just couldn't get her, you know, with a woman with the legs that long, you think she could fucking gallop like a a gazelle, but no. I mean, probably after 36 hours in hell, yeah. you probably can't you know, have the strength. Really, she'd been fucking the cook the whole time, and her, her, her knees were weak. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a monster. Oh, man. Uh. Good for her. Gunner's just in the Live corner. Your last... Gunner in the corner. I'm like, yeah, you fucker. Live your best life, queen. <laughs> Leatherface does some awful things during the course of the film, but he's definitely under the thumb of his family. Gunner had this to say about the family dynamic. Leatherface is completely under the control of his family. He'll do whatever they tell him to. He's a little bit afraid of them. Now, the second aspect of the character are the mask and the significance that they play in the personality of Leatherface. The internet seems to be divided on the portrayal of the character in terms of its offensiveness, and this is something that like I only recently heard about, so I don't know how widespread this is, but we'll talk about it just because. So, when Leatherface dons a different mask, he he's sort of taking on a different domestic role in terms of the family. Yes. You know, he he when the dinner scene, he has the the feminine mask on with you know the you know, makeup, makeup and, and stuff. And in the when he's killing, he's wearing what they call the killing mask. But then the very uh, there's also the when he's cooking dinner, he's wearing the old lady mask. And because of this psychosexual cross dressing sort of element, some people on the internet have taken offense to it. So that's my first question: Is this offensive? No, because it's not supposed to portray a normal thing. It's not supposed to play portrayed that he's a normal trans character doing normal trans. So this is insanity. It's like, uh, fuck. Sleepaway Camp Killer. Oh, Angela Baker. It's like Angela. Angela is not a portrayal of a true transgender person. They are abused into insanity. So therefore, it is not offensive. This 
Okay, yes, and is also coming from boomers. So you do have the they have the more stereotypical uh nuclear family stereotypes they grew up on. So he perverts that insanely, but it's not offensive because it's not they're not punching down. They're not punching down on an oppressed group. They're portraying insane fucking serial killers. I'm not gonna disagree with you. I and I I I think that art is absolutely something that you should probably not critique in terms of offensiveness because sometimes art is infi- meant to be. It, it meant to be offensive. It's offensive by nature. Um, it's just a movie, people. Just yeah. get, get over it. All right. Um, the cross-dressing element is really only presented in the original film and in The Next Generation, and they go, they go, balls they go full one. bore with that one. Is this a missing element from the later sequels? With the camp of part two, no. It's unnecessary. Uh, three, they kind of... They kind of have that psychosexual element, but it's more in like with Viggo Mortensen's character. Yeah. I, I like playing with it a little. I don't think it needs to be explicit. I don't, I don't don't think it needs to go as balls out as Next Generation. Nothing needs to go as balls well, out. No, but... Even even in terms of just him wearing different, the the different faces he wears have different meanings in how he interacts with his environment. That's something that's kind of missed from the sequels. I, I do agree with that, and I do think there is one place it might have been interesting. At the the prequel Leatherface would have been interesting to dabble with that, like where they, they escape the asylum and. The obvious fake out that you they, they want you to think it's the big guy, but you know it's not going yeah. to be. A little bit of the psychosexual. And there is a little, because he cuts that chick off, chick's face off at the end. They could have maybe done a little something more with that. But no, I don't. I think it, I think it serves its purpose. I just think that there should have been more thought in terms of the overall Leatherface character in subsequent sequels. Um, like... Okay, I'll talk about the remake real quick. In the remake, he does wear the face. Yes, of, I was going to mention that myself. The and boyfriend. That, and that's awesome. But what, other than to strike fear, like what is the purpose of that? That was only to strike fear, and I, I thought it was great. I And, I, and I'm not going to disagree yeah. with you on that. But he has functionality for for character reasons of why he's wearing different masks in yeah. the first movies. And I think if they had been more thought in terms of like, if him switching his mask up throughout some of the sequels, I think that could have added. I could get that, especially in this, some of the sequels, but with the remake, the actual just kill masks they have was so cool. They did. I'm glad they didn't replace it, but the once with the boyfriend's face, cause that was a cool mask. Okay. Million dollar question. Is Gunner the best Leatherface? Fuck yes. Should he should he have returned to the role? See, I was I knew this question was coming up the whole time. I'm thinking the camp and just balls out Gonzo black comedy that is the sequel. I don't think it helped. I think I think it would actually cut down from the. the I'm sure Toby would have worked with him, but if you take. Texas Chainsaw Massacre one Leatherface and dump him in part two, it doesn't work. Three, I mean, the guy they have is a big motherfucker. R.A. Mahalo. Yeah. He's great, too. Yeah. That was a great one, but maybe the more visceral, because that was kind of a stocky, more typical slasher killer. The fucked up, I'm coming to get you! Would have been better, but... Uh, 
Gunner got fucked, though. I think he should have been in the sequels. Um, well, here's the thing. he It's on the way you look at it. It's sort of like Betsy Palmer and why she never came back. Yeah. They offered her the chance, but they weren't going to pay her. They're what like, she, yeah, fuck you. We'll pay you know, Stuntman fees, isn't it? Well, normal Stuntman for the sequel? Yeah, well, it's uh, basically canon films, too, so you got to take that yeah. for a, uh, under consideration that they were probably skirting the line of what was legal as well. Yeah. But I, for my money, I think if if he had come back for part two, I don't know that part two would even have been the way it was. No, I mean, that's true. I mean, it, he may have just went like, okay, let's do a more traditional sequel. We have two of the original characters coming back. Let's do something. So do you think a version, a more straight ahead version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre could have worked? I have such love in my heart for the second one. I, I know, I'm sure it could have. I'm glad we got... I would have liked to have seen the full vision of what was intended, but I love what we got. It's so I, balls out and gonzo. I'm going to say no. I, I, I don't I don't think that this is a replicatable... Oh, no. T- you were saying that... I, could, you, I thought you were asking, would a more straightforward sequel have worked at all? I think it would have worked. No. They're never going to... This is lightning in the bottle. This is Ghostbusters 84. This is... Uh, Although I don't give two shits about these movies. It's Star Wars. It's like just capturing something that can never be really well, replicated. I, listen, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, but I love it because it's different. It's so it's night like, and day. And I just don't I just don't think that that you doing could, a straight in, version would in, in the eighties, I don't think you could replicate what you did in the first movie successfully. That's that's what I'm gonna argue. Absolutely, I agree. All right. Um one of the reoccurring themes I find in these movies is that there's so many actors that should have been more successful in the world of film. And Gunner acted on and off throughout the course of his life. Uh, but admittedly, he was, he's never had a passion for it, believe it or not. And uh, he had this to say about pursuing a career as a writer rather than the Hollywood spotlight. Acting had never been what I intended to do. I moved back to Maine and decided to get serious about writing. That had always been my main interest, so I always wanted to focus on my work. I moved to a village on the island on the coast where I figured I could just hit those keys. Now, Gunner was fairly successful as a writer. He penned a really highly regarded novel called Island at the Edge of Time, A Journey to America's Barrier Island. So if you want to check out something good that's not, you know, blood and guts related, that might be right up your no. alley. <laughs> um, did you ever meet Gunner? No. Well, I have a, I have a Gunner story. All right. And it's a fucking doozy. I've actually met Gunner twice. Uh, the second time, when I was working uh, at my current job, we had him in 2014, October 2014, which was roughly about a year and a month before he died because he passed away in 2015 in December, I believe. And we were doing uh, our... I work at a year-round haunted house, but we were preparing for October. So our theme that year was Backwoods Terror 2. So we're doing rednecks and everything sort of in the vein of what is Texas Chainsaw Master Hills Have Eyes kind of related. Yeah. So the idiom came down, like, who are we going to get? And I'm like, well, we have to get Gunnar Hansen. We got to get Gunnar Hansen, and uh, I'm glad they got him because uh, we had him set up for autographs, 
and I recreated the table, you know, from the dinner scene. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a prop of an old man in a chair, and I put a prosthetic on him to make him look like Grandpa. He's kind of like, we call him Fat Grandpa because he's, <laughs> he's fatter. But I made all these signs and stuff, uh, you know, like beware, dead end kind of stuff. But I had a sign that said, Yankees will be hung. <laughs> and where we had him set up, I guess he got bored in between people coming in, and he took a pen, and he wrote, rhyming almost microscopically, right before hung, he wrote, well. (laughs) And I hate so much that when we tore the stuff down at the end of the month, that, that got tossed because I wanted to keep that so badly. I'm going to fucking cry. That's horrible. He was so nice. Down to earth, uh, he signed for free, oddly enough, which was because they paid him up front. Yeah. Like here, show up and sign for free of whatever people show up. So I, I loaded up. I got him to autograph my VHS and, and my my DVD. I didn't have a Blu-ray version at that time, but I, I would have got him to autograph my underwear if, if he hadn't, you know, been freaked out by it. His but. ball sweat's still fresh, <laughs> sir. But I just thought that was, that's my little uh, touch with greatness and that is... You know, Gunnar Hansen. That's awesome. It's a wonderful little moment. <sighs> all right. Big four slashers of all time. You got Jason, you got Freddy, you got Michael, and you got Leatherface. Now, there is a member of the Rant Army who would argue that Leatherface does not belong on this list. His name is Fat Fuck Scott. Love you, Scott. But for let's play devil, devil's advocate. Number one. Does Leatherface belong on the Mount Rushmore of slashers? Fuck yeah, and here's my reasoning. As I said, there's so much goodwill for that character from the first one that does maybe unfairly bolster some of the shitty sequels. But it faps a fucking lootly. It's still going today. Where's Jason and Freddy? Well, fan tied, films. Tied up in legal. Well, not Freddy, I'm just hell. saying. But, uh, the, no, I mean, they the Netflix shitty money, it still had great kills. When he gets on that bus and they're, we're going to cancel you, that's <laughs> fucking amazing. I don't hate- I, My dick was hard that whole scene in laughter. I think I had such low expectations for that movie that I ended up loving it. Yeah. It, the, the only thing that ever came through as a true negative is like, why'd you even have her in it? Don't try to Halloween this shit. Oh, that- Everything else is, like you said, low expectation. But anyway, no, he definitely deserves to be on there. All right, out of the four, where do you rank him? Freddie, this is my personal event. Jason, I kind of hate to say it. Michael and, and Leatherface, he's four because his one performance beats any of the others, any performance in any sequel or original. <sighs> but I'm having to take franchises as a whole. It's still number four. I, as In terms of franchise, I think you're right. Individual one movie performance, you're fuck Robert England's great. Uh, fucking I'm, all the big people that played Michael who were good, anything like that. Nobody's beating Gunnar Hansen's Texas Chainsaw. I'm con- I'm conflicted on like who if if I would have Leatherface as number one, uh, because I think that Michael Myers in that first film is just a it's that's it, kind of the same thing it's a it's it's so much goodwill built off the legacy of the first one but there are some really good things in the sequels 
until Busta Rhyme kung fu's him and re- resurrects. <laughs> we don't talk about that in this house. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now I didn't intend this episode to be a complete burial of the sequels. Uh, most of them, I think, are at least watchable. Oh yeah. Um, does the subsequent sequels affect how you feel about the character nope. overall? Nope. Oh well, over the the character overall, that's why he's number four. But uh, does it affect so, my yes. enjoyment of the... Re- yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, when you finish that, I'll listen to the rest of that question. Does it <laughs> Thank affect you for my... Listening. I appreciate that. <laughs> does it affect my enjoyment of that original movie? No. No bad... Pre- no leather face and an evening gown and diamond necklace who kills no one with a chainsaw in Next Generation uh, affects my love and terror and the certain knowledge that he will come out from the woods and kill me one day. I... I have so much goodwill for the portrayal of Gunner that I you could have him in an animated movie where he teams up with Mickey Mouse, and I still it it would not deter me from saying Leatherface belongs on Mount Rushmore. Oh yeah, and he's one of the greatest and most iconic characters in film, not just horror films. And he should have had a cameo in the Chippendale Rescue Ranger movie on Disney+. Plus. I agree. <laughs> and the cook should have been fucking... Uh, uh, what's the... What's Gadget. The, 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 yeah, there you go. Gadget married uh, the fly thing. I can't remember what... Interspecies marrying... It's technically in the Roger Rabbit universe, because Roger Rabbit, That's as true. Roger Rabbit, is in the movie. Goddamn deviancy. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a short commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about a certain hitchhiking psychopath. So stay uh, tuned. It's, it's good picture. Hey, wrestling fans, have you ever wanted to watch the black and gold brand from the very beginning? Well, we have the podcast for you. Right here at Next Evolution, the rise and demise of the black and gold brand. See such stars as Seth Rollins. Bo Dallas, Bray Wyatt, Cassius Ono, Aiden English, and Corey Graves get their start all the way to the demise of the black and gold brand. Follow us at Next Evolution Pod on all social media platforms and follow our podcast, NXT Evolution, anywhere podcasts can be found. Do you love metal? Are you a nerd? I got the podcast for you. It's the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast. Looks about me, Metal Thrashing Mike. And every episode, I'll be bringing you fans from the world of underground heavy metal, just waiting for you to hear them. So go check us out on all major streaming services. That's the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast. Come on down to Mask by Lance, premium Friday the 13th custom-made hockey mask, down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mask by Lance. Go order one now, boy. Yee-hoo! Hey, assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? 
a mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to rantarmy.com. And if you don't buy something, then fuck ya! Dive into the new action-packed thriller, Mr. Black. This is a story about a mafia hitman, Mr. Black, whose latest target is nothing like he's had to deal with before. Mr. Valentino is a man that's into the dark arts, who calls on the Grim Reaper to kill Black. However, the spell fails to be fully successful, as he is still murdered. Now, Death himself is pursuing Mr. Black relentlessly. Now who can Black turn to for help? Who can stop a curse like this? Get Mr. Black on Amazon Books or as a digital download on Kindle. All right, welcome back, Rant Army. Leatherface may have the spotlight, but the true standout of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a full-time straight razor-wielding maniac and a part-time photography enthusiast who's just looking for a ride home. Let's talk about Ed Neal, a.k.a. The Hitchhiker. He's in... Quite a few things that, uh, a wide ver- variety, not just horror. He was in Future Kill, which sees him reteam with, uh, Sally from this film. Don't think I've seen that one. It's, it is a weird dystopian cyberpunk kind of movie. It, it, it was highly sought after by me as a kid because I knew, like, oh, Ed Neal and, um, I'm blanking on her character, or the actress's name, Marilyn Burns, you know, reteam for Future Kill. And then I watched it and I'm like, wow, this was, very oh, mediocre. Okay. <laughs> okay, at best. And he's also in My Boyfriend's Back. I've seen, I have seen that. Do you know the significance of My Boyfriend's Back? I don't know the significance. All right. That, it started off as a script for a film called Johnny Zombie. <laughs> That's a Johnny, better title. Johnny Zombie was written by Dean Laurie. Dean Laurie is the best friend of Adam Marcus. Adam Marcus had been hired by Disney to be the youngest film director of a major studio picture of all time, they got cold feet and they ousted him from Mm. the project. This directly led to him getting Jason Goes to Hell because they wrote and and he directed it. So that's there's your history lesson about My Boyfriend's Back. It's actually a pretty decent... It's a little funny, cute comedy. Now, aside from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ed is best known for his voice work, especially his 103-episode run on the anime Gotcha Man. Not an anime guy. Not no, no me neither. No. I, I've seen some... I like some anime movies. I, the only show I've ever watched was Death Note. Badass show. Yeah, I, I can't speak to the quality of it, but I'm assuming he's fucking ta- fantastic. hundred and some episodes. It had to have some kind of quality. Well, let's... Okay. I mean, super, somebody like Supernatural it. was on the air for Dude, more than I have my wife and Sadie are going through that entire show. Sadie's on like season 11, so still has four more to go. My wife's on like season seven. That's her after. I'm so supernatural. I've actually seen more Supernatural in the past three weeks than the entire run of the show ever. I hate Supernatural with a passion. <clears throat> and you know who loves Supernatural but hates Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Fat fuck Scott. Fuck you, Scott. <laughs> All right, all all that taken into consideration, Ed, Ed is the definition of a character actor. Like he's he's the best possible situation for for an actor. You throw him into a role, he'll find a way to make it his own. He will he'll do what's on the page. If you want him to act crazy, he'll act crazy. If you want him to be the you know the straight man, he'll be the straight man. But I can't help but feel like 
he could have had an entire career in the 1980s playing psychopaths. Yeah, basically the hitchhiker over and over. It had been fucking great. Do, do you think he could have been a star? Like, a, like a, 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 the equivalent of maybe not like Robert England, but like a step down yeah, in terms I, of yeah, like definitely. He recognizable definitely, horror star. Absolutely, I, I think he could have. I'd like to see a whole fucking horror movie of just not the hitchhiker from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but, you know, a crazy motherfucker stalking kids. You just did a good picture. You just, I love it. Just and he just grabs him and cuts him in the fucking strawberry burst. Oh, I love that! And then at the end when he's chasing her and his ways <laughs> of slowing it down because he keeps coming up, I think are the most inventive rather than like Gunnar Hansen. Like I just love how he's like his weird whole body movement. He's having fun with her. Yeah, and Leatherface is. I'm gonna to kill. kill. So that that's a that's a good difference between the yeah. two the characters, you know, just fucked up evil and the intent of kill. Business evil, evil you yeah. know. Business instinct evil. to kill. <laughs> um, our opinions aside, uh, the star position seems to have not been the goal for Ed at all. Uh, Ed had this to say, to tell you the truth, I don't want to be Clark Gable. I want to be Strother Martin. I have no <laughs> idea who that is. Or L.Q. Jones. No idea who no. that is either. A character actor. Now, Ed shines in every scene of this movie, but if we're going to hold a microscope to the character, the van scene has to be what we discuss. What makes the van scene so iconic? It's just, it's immediately unsettling, but you don't know why. It still could be like, oh, this guy's a little off. The picture, and what is he, $5 or something? I can't remember. I I can't, Five dollars, I'm pretty sure. And in 1974, that's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> As a little kid at eight years old, God five dollars bo- a lot of money for me. But I was old enough to know that five dollars back then is just way ridiculous. Bo- Goddamn bohemian artists. They don't understand yeah. the, the value of a hard day's work. Where <laughs> his brother's slaving over a hot meal all day and this motherfucker just wants to take pictures of people. Uh, artists. <laughs> But no, like, and then just when he goes full bore crazy and then get him out and he's still going crazy on the side of the road, that's like, it's, again, it's not as viscerally upsetting as the uh, Leatherface's first kill. That's what really, but the movie, you're just off the rest of the time. You're just like, what's going to happen? It just, it's the big fuck you to kind of lead into like, this isn't just a normal horror movie. He serves a couple of purposes because Ultimately, if you really look at it, he's he's the real villain of the movie um, yeah, I see that. because he's he's there from beginning to end, to both terrorizing physically and mentally. But he also serves somewhat as the soothsayer of sort of like, hey, you may think you're off on an idyllic stroll, but no, fucked up things are happening. And had it not been for the fact that they're running low on gas, you know, they could have gotten away. But he he set the stage for like. I'm coming back. And even like Franklin, who's the most annoying character perhaps in film history, he makes a valid point. You know, like, you think that guy's going to come back and look for me? He he, he instinctively knew. He put in such an impression on on him that, I mean, and how do you not when you're like, (laughs) everything he does in that scene is so unsettling. You know, one thing I always thought, and I've for years, like this wasn't until high school until we met him. Like, I was like, th- this is Matt Underwood one bad day away from oh my like, God. Uh, one dose of PCP, 
and, and left out in the middle of nowhere. This I could see Matt Underwood having this kind of crazy vibe. Yeah, uh, the listening audience probably doesn't have a clue what we're talking about. It's a buddy about, of ours. It's a buddy of ours, and uh, he's he, he. We love you, man. We love you to death, but he he's a little odd and um, very manic at points. So yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Uh, the audience weren't the only ones who were freaked out by Ed's freaky antics. Uh, Marilyn Burns had this to say, Ed came on and gunpowder had to explode and we didn't know what we were doing. They just put the gunpowder in his hand and he lit the match. We almost killed ourselves. The second time he did it, we were all scared to death before he did it because we were expecting an explosion. There's a there's a an awkward sweetness to the character um, of the hitchhiker because he's he's genuinely trying to bond with these people. Now maybe in the back of his head he has a nefarious. Uh, I wonder what would have happened if they bought the picture and complimented it. Well, bought the picture and then just drop him off. Would yeah. they, would they have survived? And what would have been left of them then? Ah, oh, but not, who knows? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the 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 plot would have been a lot more streamlined, but a lot less interesting yeah, had, had that happened. But speaking of the van, here's a little bit of trivia for you. Do you know who the van belonged to? No. Alumni from the podcast, a little gentleman by the name of Ted Nicolau. Oh. Now, he was a sound recordist on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he went on to direct all the subspecies movies and Terror Vision um, I love Terror Vision. I, I, fucking Terror Vision. That, that, that's one we've got to do yeah. eventually. That's got to at least be a watch along. Yeah, well, we probably don't want to go too deep into, into the, the yeah. weeds on Terror Vision, yeah. but it's a very enjoyable film. However, um, the first subspecies, can't talk, subspecies film, like that might be one to actually do yeah, a retrospective I mean, that's, about. It's uh, a good movie. 90, 90s horror, um, those were absolute staples of that time. You know? Yes. Um, so several of the scenes of the film are either iconic as iconic can get, but the van scene in particularly is infamous because reportedly it directly affected hitchhiking to drop <laughs> by 18% in the state of Texas. Oh, that's great. So there's a two-part question. Do you think it's a coincidence that the numbers drop, or did this legit... I don't have- think it's a coincidence. No. I like like shit like that. And again, it was more common. I myself have only ever picked up two hitchhikers in my life, and I personally knew one of them. And this movie's always been in my head. And the other person, it was super muggy, hot, and raining, and they were a tiny woman. And I'm like, I could take this bitch even if she has a gun. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that was in my head. I'm like, it doesn't look like she has a gun. I hold the purse. This was after Monster came out, so that was a thought in my head. Oh. <laughs> well, here this is actually the, my follow up to that question: is has TCM affected your view of picking up hitchhikers? Yes, it did directly. Like it's it, it's unless it's an emergency situation, somebody looks like they could die without that ride. I'm not picking them up. I re- I picked up a hitchhiker one time, and he wanted to be dropped off at College Square Mall at the bottom of Hillcrest School. And I know what I'm saying here; people won't understand, but where we grew up, yeah, this is not a far far area like it's within walking distance but it was hot and this guy was carrying three fishing poles so instantly like when i get in the car with him it dawns on me it's like why does he have three fishing poles and why is he wanting to go to the mall now i didn't ask him because i didn't want to open a can of worms like okay well this motherfucker is like well i'm going to use two of these to tie you down and one of them to, to, to i don't know put in you put in you but there was that moment where i'm like did he kill 
two other people <laughs> for their fishing poles. So as soon as he got out of the car, um, I was planning on going to the mall anyway. So that's kind of like why I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll drive you. But I make sure to park in a different place. I was like, well, he, you know, he won't find me. So I'm still alive. So thankfully, I didn't get killed or anything. But yeah. retroactively now, it does linger in my head. Like picking up a, a hitchhiker uh Chances are you're not going to have anything happen, but there is that yeah, like you're that, still putting the chance that it might in your car. That minute possibility is still a possibility. So I'm not telling you guys to be assholes to people in need, but uh, oh, yeah, we also don't want to see murder. Weigh weigh the pros and cons before you allow. Make somebody. sure you f- think you can physically dominate them in a fight. <laughs> Um, prior to his acting career, Ed served in the military during the Vietnam War, and in 1969, he received the high honor of Bronze Star of Valor. The, the Bronze Star of Valor is the fourth highest award for military combat ba- bravery. Now, earlier, when he mentioned that the dinner scene was worse than his tour in Vietnam, to achieve this award, you have to see legit fighting. He killed some Charlie. I mean, it's very possible. We don't know and that's, you know. Bare hands with a razor. <laughs> that's where he, they learned that's his where technique. He, yeah. <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't take his picture. They called him or Night Death picture. in the Jungle. <laughs> but that that really says a lot uh, that he makes that statement and he was a combat veteran that like Saw achieved it, yeah. this really high level of commendation. That That's crazy. Now, the Vietnam War is, was an was and is an unpopular and unfortunate piece of American history, and we're not going to get into the minutiae about you know the you know the circumstances and whether we were we got some right good music not. out of it. That's just the that, dirty hippies. That's true, but the world was changing, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like the the perfect post Vietnam. Oh film. yeah, absolutely. So my my question is. How impactful was the Vietnam just in itself in the shift of cinema in a darker direction? Oh, yes. It's not just this movie. There's a lot of other movies that actually talk about basically the the rot underneath the veneer of the American dream, Americana, normal teens just driving across country that go to find a doorway to hell in a real earthly way, not like a figurative yeah, I think Vietnam, it it, it, ki- it killed America's ideal of post-World War II boomer idealism. Like the picket fence America, like they were watching soldiers die on TV every night for no reason other than ideologically. Well, and, and you have to think of it too, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre was not the first movie No, to yeah, do there was this. a lot of there them. There was a lot of counterculture films in the 60s, you know, Easy Rider and... Uh, so on and so forth. Billy Jack. <laughs> Billy Jack. <laughs> but Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it t- it kind of takes that idea and pushes it into a really nasty place. And I feel like there is film before and after Vietnam, but there's horror pre and post Vietnam. Oh, yes. And to me, this is the moment where horror stops being, for lack of a better word, campy. I no, know, I get what not, you're saying. It's not an it's accurate descriptor. Innocently, but. Ter- innocently scary. Like it, it, they, Toby Hooper wanted to fuck you up for life. It's not just go to the movie, go to the cinemas with your best gal and get some spooky chills. Even like there are great movies before then. His like 
the world is shit. You're going to be murdered. I know I'm going to be murdered by Leatherface one day. I'm to this day. I'm convinced. I'll be walking alone at night. Somehow, I will hear the the buzz and I'm dead. But yeah, absolutely. Like this was not like a oh let's just go have fun, make drive 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 in uh, exploitation, which it was on the surface. He wanted to get the fuck in there and fuck you up. I guess maybe you could make the argument that Last House on the Left predates it, and that movie is incredibly it, nasty as well. It does, it, but it, it doesn't ride the line as well, because there are massively goofy elements. The fucking cops in that movie are <laughs> Martin fucking, Cove is one of those yeah. cops who uh, is... Uh, it's just... It, it, it almost... Kai Sensei. It, it gets to the finish line, but doesn't break the string. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, barrels to the audience watching the race. I think there's definitely a debate to be had there, because... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of the two films, is the more iconic and the one that is... Well acted. Con- it's is, perfect. It's con- is appreciated in value over the years, where Last House on the Left is, is very niche, and only film nerds or diehard horror fans have seen it, so it hasn't encroached or encroached upon the lexicon of American life or the world in the world as much, but... I think that it, it's it's definitely kind of like one A one B in terms yeah, of like I, yeah shifting. I get that. All right, let me get back to where I was. Um, of TCM's villains, I know that you've said Leatherface, but do you, do you okay? Let me rephrase this. Of of our three main villains, where does the Hitchhiker rank in terms of how scary he is? Scary. It's like a, I hate to use a D and D, but I just watched the new season. Stranger. He's chaotic evil. Like you can't. He's number two. I just, fuck. It's so hard because then the 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 cook. Fuck. I know, right? It's like there is the beast that is Leatherface, the only the only slasher of the big four to viscerally terrify me. Michael Myers in the first one is scary as fuck, suspenseful. But I'm I don't I know when I go home, no blank face shape is going to kill me. It's gonna be Leatherface. <laughs> the cook and his trap of it. I guess I'm still gonna go with the hitchhiker for number two because the chaotic evil, it's like you can't stop it. There's nothing if you are in contact with this person, your life is in danger no matter what. I think it's all in the way that you categorize it, because if you're going off of I, obviously, the the iconography of the film, Leatherface, is go, always going to be number one. Also, the intent of the film, from my point of view, is that the hitchhiker, because he's there through the whole thing, and he, he starts the, the film, he ends the film, like, you're really getting the full-bore evil from him. Yeah. So, I think, he intended-wise, he's supposed to be number one, but... Leatherface is a more interesting character visually, and then you know the changing of the personalities and stuff. So you you have a more a more depth and of character. So that makes him scarier. So I I'm really I'm at a loss because I could argue all three of these is the scariest depending on circumstance. Nope, you can only argue Leatherface is the scariest. You well, can argue no, between no, the I'm, other two. I'm saying I'm not saying you. I'm saying I can argue. No, I'm saying you can't because it's it's is objective reality, not subject. I'm just playing. I'm just <laughs> fine. <laughs> I'll start hitting you. 
When in doubt, use my size advantage. <laughs> now, if we were to assign, it's oddly enough, and I, I, I kid you not, Tony has not read these notes, has not read no. these notes, but I want, I'm going to read this verbatim, what I have written okay. right here. If you were to assign the characters of Texas Chainsaw Massacre positions on a Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> chart, the hitchhiker would definitely be chaotic evil. Uh. However, on the other side of the paradigm, we have his mirror image sitting on chaotic good, and that would be Paul Partain as Franklin Hardesty. <sighs> All right, he's he's had a fairly successful uh, career. Uh, he was in Race with the Devil with Peter Fonda, yeah. which as a kid was one of the scariest movies I'd ever seen. Yeah, I can see that. Um, it doesn't exactly hold up, but the whole thing is it's just this people in a car pretty much the whole movie, and it's, they're trying to stay one step ahead of the devil. It's almost like the... Uh, the older version of This Follows, now that I'm thinking about yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's a good movie. I really like it. It was in Rolling Thunder with Tommy Lee Jones, who was in No Country for Old Men yeah. with Woody Harrelson, who was in Zombieland with Bill Murray, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. TCM, The Next Generation, but not as Franklin. However, more, more contemporarily, he was in The Life of David Gale with Kevin Spacey, who was in Horrible Bosses with Charlie Day, who's in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with Danny DeVito, who was in Twins, which was directed by Ivan Reitman. Blah, blah, blah. Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters, you just got busted. Three Bust times. all over me, Daddy. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> all right. Uh. The character of Franklin is one of the most debated characters in the history of horror because he is a whiny bitch. There's no other way of putting it. I mean, he is, but let's. I'm going to take a moment and normally, though, he's such a whiny bitch and he annoys the piss out of me. But to play Angel's Advocate, Devil's Advocate, he is differently abled around a bunch of hot, young, sexy other teenagers just being drug along because he's the brother. In a fucking van that doesn't look like it has air. Did they even have air conditioning vehicles? Why is he pissing? He's being lugged around. Why do they have him pissing in a coffee can? Is that just because they didn't show? So they wouldn't have to show his dick on camera because he's literally pissing in a Folgers coffee can on the side of the road. He's his back's turned to everybody. He's facing the camera. Maybe he saves it. I don't know. I, it's good for the skin. It was it was fuel so shortages so bad that they found a way you can run cars off piss. Uh, All right. Is Franklin the most annoying character in the history of horror? It's really hard for me to think of others. I mean... there's I have one off the top of my head. There's the bitch in, I think it's Halloween 5? You very me too, Tina. Oh, Halloween. Yeah. That's number one for me. I'd give her a number two, but yeah, that's the only other one that's like actively like... Mm. Here's, here's the thing. Both of these characters are not. You you want to see them get killed, I guess. And, and at least Tina's got tits you can look at. She doesn't show them though. Doesn't and, show and, them, but you can and see that's them under why her. she's number one. <laughs> Paul Partain could have showed his tits, and I've been like, well, there's nice jugs. <laughs> <sighs> nice jugs, Frankie Pooh. Does does him being annoying benefit or hurt his character? I, I and mean, here's my benefit. Here's what I was also thinking because you had mentioned earlier about it's still like it honestly makes his death a little more effective because you hate him and this isn't one of those you want to see die. But uh, like you, you start to identify more with his situation, like his, uh, like his, you know, his. Oh, yeah. 
the audience can kind of see his perspective more. Yeah, when he comes out, and again, I'm being sympathetic. He is disabled, surrounded by hot young poon. It's hot as fuck. He's stuck in the wheelchair. He has to have help. And kind of, oh, it's just, I feel bad for the guy, but he's annoying as fuck. Ugh. Well, one of the things that we haven't really touched on is why all this has come together. And that's because Sally and Franklin's, someone of their family, I think it was their grandfather, their grave has been desecrated. Yeah. And so he's not there for fun, you know? Yeah. And this isn't a situation where like, well, you know, I have to bring my, you know, my differently abled brother along because mom says so and we're going to fuck and smoke weed and he'll just have to be quiet and not tell on us kind of a situation. They have an intent of why they're in the area and when they, you know, get close to running out of gas, that's when the problems really start. Now, I'm I'm assuming he's probably annoying, you know, 24-7, but... It's not a situation of them excluding him or wanting to exclude him for the sake of excluding him. They they might want to, yeah. But he has a reason for being there, and you know you, he knows that too. So that probably just affects his behavior more. Kind of like Shelley showing out in Friday the Thirteenth Three, just because he's insecure. He's just more annoying because he's insecure. Probably right. Now Paul Partain was not liked on set at all. Now, what his, his castmates didn't realize at the time is that he was method acting. And his excessive whining uh, con- continued whether he was being filmed or not. Oh, so he God. just stayed in character all the time. He was particularly not liked by Gunnar Hansen. But <laughs> uh, overall, the, the cast, they were able to forgive him in time because, like it or not, the guy, whatever, whatever mind space he got into to portray that character, it is so evident on screen. Yeah. Like, there, there is no arguing that, like, oh, you don't like this character for X, Y, and Z. No, it's evident he's he's intentionally being annoying and going about it in a above and beyond kind of way. What do you think about method acting in film and how far is too far? I hate fucking method actors nine times out of ten. Yes, it can yield great results. Did Daniel fucking... Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis really need to learn how to be a butcher to be Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York? No. Did he really need to learn how to sew in the, the something thread, whatever his last move? No. There are oh, s- I have to interject. Did he really have to pretend... To the whole... The, yeah. My left foot? Yeah. To be crippled the whole time, make people feed him, pick him... Oh, see, shit like that's what bothers me. Again, great results... But you also have another great actor, Anthony fucking Hopkins. He gets a script, he reads it a hundred times, figures out his voice, and does the fucking he will lines. Do, he will do no more than three takes, and he's like... And he doesn't to... fucking need the next two. Exactly. <laughs> so, I think it's a it's not... Whatever works for them, I guess. Method acting is not a... It's not a science. It's something that you can apply, and it, it might work for you, and it might not. One of my favorite instances, there's a film called Marathon Man. Oh, with, yes. With, um, I know the du- story. with Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman took this role so seriously. And he's like, my character is supposed to be run down and tired. So I'm going to stay up for, you know, like 48 hours. And when we shoot this scene, it'll come across on film. And he's acting with Sir Lawrence Olivier, one of the greatest screen actors of all time. And Lawrence Olivier is like, why Why are you so tired? And he explains to him, he's like, well, I'm method acting. He's like, why don't you just act? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's such a, it's such a, an innocent and completely valid 
argument. Yeah. Marlon Brando is a perfect example. <sighs> Marlon Brando did not take acting seriously, and he's one of the greatest that ever lived. He stuffed cotton balls in his cheeks, or maybe he on set he needed a little a little man sitting next to him, whatever. Or, or some of those co-stars had to have cue cards on their bodies <laughs> during The Godfather. <laughs> Whatever it took, it worked. Yeah. So there's a method to everybody, and some work, some don't. Um, do you think that the method acting works in this instance? I mean, if he's annoying as fuck offset, then I'm sure it did, because he was intentionally supposed to be annoying and unpleasant. But the more he freaks out, the more the audience kind of shifts to see things his way, to freak out at everything, because they know like he freaks out the smallest thing. He's not seeing people get their head bashed in with hammers and women put on knee hooks. The audience knows that. They're like, he's fucking right. Listen to him. Ultimately, yeah, he, he is right. He's, he becomes the audience POV for a moment before... Mwah. He's the uh, uncomfortable truth. That, that's a good way to put it. That that's a the- really good way. Now, another element that has been debated to death online is the decision to put Franklin in a wheelchair. So, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of restricting the character. The The pros is that it allows, it basically it puts a logic as to why that he doesn't leave the van. Like, and yeah. Sally is like, well, I've got to walk, you know, watch after my, my brother because he's in a wheelchair. So, it allows the characters to be separated. And there's your your valid reason and then the argument is that it slows the film down because like there's that infamous scene where Sally's pushing him through the the thick and all that and it's like dark and and I mean there's legit moments where she's having trouble pushing his fat ass around so pros and cons what do you what do you think I think it, it works great for the movie vulnerability you know he's fucked you know he's fucked off jump street that terrain is not handicap accessible it does make everything, it does tie her to him because it's not like some stranger. That's her fucking brother. She yeah. can't just, you know, any of my siblings, like, peace, bitch, and run. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a movie. So you got it in movies. Siblings somewhat love each other. But no, it's, um, I think it works wonders. I get on set and logistically and everything. It was probably a real big pain in the ass, but that kind of adds to his Annoying element. Not only is he annoying, but here's something that he can't control that they're still having to put up with. And then sometimes he's a dick about it, too. What the fuck? You know? So I I think it works perfect. I think it's kind of genius, actually. And it's it's a choice that a lot of other movies wouldn't make, both for production issues and because, especially like later slasher films, which admittedly we love... You have to keep your pace sort of going, and he does slow the pace down, but I think that makes the moments more impactful, because this is not a body count film. In a lot of ways, this is a character film. really is, yes. When, you know, for better or for worse, whether you love Franklin or not, when he ultimately gets axed, it has pathos to it because they've, (laughs) they've built up to that moment, and trust me, we are getting to it. All right, let's real quickly... Before we wrap up on on Paul, um, his dependency on Sally is another interesting character choice because Sally has to take care of him. It's not a, she's not choosing to; she has to, yeah. or at least she feels mentally she has to. And I think that creates a very interesting dynamic where she she obviously loves him, 
But there is there is a subtle disdain between, oh, between absolutely. them because of this because he's pissed off that he has to be there, and they go to the the house where their you know the, like their family used yeah. to live in, and and he can't really get around, and he's pissed off about that. And in fact, that's where he's like, <laughs> yeah, which is another scene that is hilarious. That's gold, yeah. But I, you can tell like she has moments where she it's. It may not even be pervaded vocally, but it's just in her eyes. We're like, I want to leave. I want to leave him, but I can't. You know, I yep. think that's masterful in its simplicity. Yes. All right. Paul passed away in two thousand five at the age of fifty eight, but his legacy is set in stone forever in the form of Franklin. I think now would be a great moment for you and I to pay tribute to the man with another rants recreation. I'm excited. Now, Tony, you're going to be reading the role of the hitchhiker, and I'll be reading the role of Franklin. <clears throat> hey, hey, man, you, you ever go to that slaughter room where, where they call it, where the place where they shoot the cattle in the head with the big old air gun? Oh, oh, that gun's no good. Uh, I, I I was there uh, once with my uncle. The old way, with the sledge. You see, that way's better. They die better that way. Uh, well, how, how come? I thought the gun was better. Oh, no, with, with the new way... People were put out of jobs. Did did you do did you do that? Uh, look, 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 I was the killer. Damn. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> scene. <laughs> oh man. Uh the these moments of dialogue, they're they're very to the point. Um there's not a lot of subtlety in them, but there's a lot of subtlety in the acting. And uh, a lot of uh, acting teachers would say that acting is reacting. The looks on the the people's faces in that scene when Ed Neal is going nuts, you know, with the hitchhiker character, that's something you can't, that's not acting, that's reacting. Yes. And it's, it's genuine because he's like got under their skin because he's put on such a presence. But if you look at Franklin, you know, I know we make jokes about, you know, him potentially wearing adult diapers or something because he's handicapped. But if he were going to shit himself, that's the point he does it. Absolutely. That's the point he does it. Now, there are many who have laid claim to the title of film's greatest scream queen, but no one has ever or will ever touch the raw ability to belt out a hellish tone quite like this film's protagonist. We have Marilyn Burns as Sally Hardesty, also in Helter Skelter, Eaten Alive, Kiss Daddy Goodbye, Future Kill, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, where the implication is that she may or may not be Sally. It's a cameo. It doesn't really amount to much. And she's also in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D, where she does not play Sally. She plays uh, Vera Carson, who is the aunt of Leatherface. It's uh, ultimately an inconsequential role. Uh, Marilyn got her start in acting when she was in high school playing a tour guide in the Robert Altman film Brewster McCloud and was offered a part in a film called Love and Molly, which was directed by Sidney Lumet, but was cut in favor for a young and upcoming actress by the name of Susan Sarandon. So that way that sucks to be her because that could have been the jumping off point for her career. However, fast forward a few years and Marilyn is attending the University of Texas at Austin where once in a lifetime opportunity was about to come her way. She had this to say, I went to UT and I was on the film commission there. I started to bring movie. It, Mr. Give me go back. It was started to bring movies into the state. There was casting calls and a million people showed up. Now she's being somewhat hyperbolic, 
but a lot of people did show up to audition for the film, but fame, uh, fate shined favorably, and the role of Sally was given to her. Now, are there examples of the proto-final girl in horror, like uh, Lila Crane in Psycho? There's probably some others I could probably throw out there, but it's hard to argue that she isn't the full full package completed version of that final girl. What makes a great final girl and where does Sally rank in terms of all time best? Okay. What makes a great final girl is I'm sorry, Sarah. I love you. We're recording this on our six year dating anniversary, not wedding. They gotta be like real fuckable, but like not (laughs) like not and not in like a slutty way that that's the first hallmark. Like they're like the girl next door, girl next door, but like, the um, uh, an idealized version of that. They have to have the innocence. She's stuck with her brother. She can't be out partying. She's not there to get dick. Uh, they have to be able to scream like a motherfucker. Obviously, like they have to be able to go. They they have to go through the ringer. Like they can't just yeah. you know stumble through. And uh, that's that's to me the the little magic recipe for a good final girl. I'm not I got sidetracked thinking of Scream Queen, but well, yeah. well actually. She lacks one thing, though. She does, out of pure blind animal instinct, break out, run away, take the opportunities. She's proactive. She doesn't really fight back. She just luckily escapes. And I think a good final girl has to have that fight. Even if it's just turn around and swinging and chopping off Mrs. Voorhees' head while Harry Knuckles squeeze air. No, <laughs> uh, But uh, that is the one thing she... I would put her... Her performance as a screen queen, bar none. Final girl, maybe like top ten. I don't think this movie is... I don't think it would have been good for her to fight back. No, no. I mean, it's a perfect movie. I'm just saying in our... What we came to decide is the perfect recipe for the perfect final girl. Yeah, for a more contemporary slasher, you're correct. For the purposes of this film... Run. Get out. That's the only thing to do. Because she's slowly driven crazy throughout the course of this. And I guess you can maybe make the argument that at a certain point, she's just as crazy as they are. Yeah. Because she starts, you know, laughing at the violence and everything as, as well. But to me, I wouldn't put her... I wouldn't put her number one. For me, my holy trinity of Scream Queens, it's, that's Brink Stevens, Linnea Quigley, and Michelle Bauer. But that's that. those are like... Scream Queens for a whole other reason. For a whole other reason. But as far as final girls, man, Jamie Lee Curtis might forever be number one. I don't think she's my favorite, but it's hard to argue that she wouldn't be number one. Jamie because, Lee, because she does Sydney Prescott. Nah. I just wanted to nah. work in Sydney Prescott nah. to piss him off. I wasn't going up with the list. Um, Sally is probably the most abused final girl. Fuck yeah, she get her and the actually the uh, stretch from part two gets pretty fucked up with the razors toward the end. Yeah, she well and uh, the uh, attempted chainsaw rape. Yeah, there. do you know how to use that? That's the most terrible. Like, that's the only scene in the movie that really kind of scared me. Like the the chase scene, and then that I'm like, the the weird 180 it took just threw my little brain off. I'm like, what the fuck? Starts digging his chainsaw yeah, dick chainsaw into the- yeah. That's that's how I learned to 
make love to a woman and scold a child. <laughs> to Bill Brasky. To Bill Brasky. <laughs> oh, man. Um, <coughs> you, you touched on it. The scratches on her back, they were real. They were running through the branches take after take so those like slashes on her back yeah, that's a dark ass set they no, may no. they may have enhanced them with like you know some like fake blood and points but the scratches are absolutely real um her finger was cut <clears throat> we mentioned that um she was beaten with a broom for real by jim Seedow. yeah because it's and, supposed to be balsa wood and well and he was not hitting her hard enough for it to like really look good and they're like yeah it really beat the shit out of her and he's like all right <laughs> so she went through the fucking ringer whatever side of the fence you fall on you can't deny that in terms of like taking a beating like she's got to be number one oh that, fuck those yeah those terms but what about in terms of her scream? The scream is... Okay. That's number one for me. Yeah. There has never been a person on film that had a better scream than Marilyn Burns. I legitimately, again, I saw it at a young age. It fucked me up. But even watching it today, it doesn't seem like a scene they're acting in. It seems like you're watching this woman's brain break. It's like to legit this snuff porn. Yeah, it, it, it's so disturbing. Uh, that, you know, it's not like, man, this is a great, I'm sure that was hell to film. And you know all these little factoids, but watching it in the moment, she is just in utter hell and her brain is breaking. And it's not an actor's performance. It's the, this character's reality overtakes the scene. It's great. Yeah. Number one screen. Yeah. I, I don't even know who would even be, I mean, to me, she has like the top 10 spots because she's so much higher than anybody else's just vocal ability to scream, let alone just the, the sheer terror that she shows in her face. Her eyes are so expressive. Yes. And she had those big 70s eyes that they like. And that's, that's the only way they I don't can think. Anymore. They don't. They, the, the humans are de-evolving. No, but <laughs> they they wanted those big-eyed people as actresses back. That's horrible. One of them Those bug-eyed bitches. <laughs> <laughs> but they tend to cast more expressive eyes than like the 80s and 90s, where it's more TNA and a pretty face. But it's like, like sometimes, like like a Goldie Hawn had those big ass eyes. Yeah, she like, did. And Kurt Russell drops loads of nose <laughs> every fucking day. <laughs> okay. You but know, yeah. you can't prove he don't. I hope he does. He, I mean, he's show, Snake show, Plissken. Show me some fun. She says, give it to me, Snake. <laughs> To this day, <laughs> she hasn't called him Kurt out, outside in private in, in 30 years. <laughs> it's Mr. Pliskin oh, yeah. when she's really oh, one that fuck, day. Fuck me, Captain Ron. <laughs> fuck me. Dock, dock your ship in my harbor. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, this is off the fucking rails. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's, her fucking scream is unparalleled. The, the shoot was grueling, obviously, experience for the entire cast, but in particularly, it was hard on Marilyn. However, despite her having arguably a harder time than anybody else, she was the film's biggest cheerleader. She had this to say, I was determined to see it to the screen. I could always envision the film on the screen. I always knew it was going to come to theaters despite the odds and the producer's thoughts. Everyone wanted to forget about it after the misery of the whole shoot, listening to that agonizing chainsaw smell of all the smells, watching the decay of the rotting chicken on the set. It was disgusting. It was miserable. Each day set up 
We went from a different kind of challenge. The reason so much of it looks so real is because it was. We didn't have props or the camera setups or anything to make it an easy shoot, so we worked with what we had. What we didn't have, we improvised. Now, the common thread I've noticed through that the entire cast of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has been largely been ignorant of their importance or popularity, uh, but with the revolution of the internet and fan conventions, everybody kind of come to realize, you know, like, holy shit, I'm famous. You know, maybe yeah. maybe in a micro sort of way, not like Brad Pitt famous, but, you know, famous to a, a cult famous, I guess. Yeah. And she passed away in 2014 on basically the anniversary of, oh. the, of the movie, you know, the Lebanon 40-year anniversary. Leatherface came for her finally out of the woods. Oh, uh, but thankfully, she finally got the recognition she deserved, and um, she did conventions the last few years of her life, and and that has to be satisfying for like just to be so loved by so many people. And like when you do conventions, like you can you can tell who enjoys to be there and who doesn't want to be there. Yeah. And she, by all accounts, she was a person that she was so gracious with people and just not understanding like why they loved her so much. She would pick one young man at every show and, and give them a night of er earthly pleasures beyond <laughs> which they had no comprehension. Well, free love. <laughs> free love. She still got that happy spirit. They took her, to take them into Ted Nicolau's van, and if it's a rockin', don't come a knockin'. She take her, she take her teeth out and gum that bitch. Mmm, some gummies, baby. <laughs> she had this to say about uh, realizing that she was a part of the film lexicon. A couple of years ago, I'm watching the Academy Awards, and I couldn't believe it. My character Sally is running in one of those montages. I know AFI always recognized us, and we were featured in MoMA in New York, but for a long time, Hollywood wasn't going to acknowledge that independent trash. Now they've put it on the Academy Awards. There's me running from Leatherface. Wow. I mean, that's, 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 that's I uh, mean, yeah, that's, I, I couldn't imagine that kind of feeling. That's, that's great. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Marilyn. We yes. greatly, greatly missed. Now, Sally and Franklin are joined by a likable cast of characters who are ill-fated to meet their doom at the hands of the murderous Texas clan. But before we get to our blood and guts, let's quickly break down our additional cast. Uh, first up, we have William Vale as Kirk. He has a small role in Poltergeist, uh, he, you know, connections yep, from Toby. Toby Hooper. He's also in a film called Mausoleum. Mausoleum came out in like 1982. Oh. And I get Mausoleum and Mortuary mixed, mixed up, up because they both came out the same year and they're basically the exact yeah, same Yeah, we were talking about this when they both came on a shutter. Yeah, I, I always get them mixed up and I literally could not tell you which one is which. No. But pretty cool. He has, he has his resume, short, but... I mean, all films that horror fans are yeah. keen on. Uh, but his greatest success came as a set decorator for such series as Gilmore Girls, Entourage, and he was nominated for a Primetime Emmy in 1998 for uh, the category of Outstanding Art Direction for a miniseries or movie for 1997's Buffalo Soldiers. Nominated for another Primetime Emmy in 1998 for the category of Outstanding Art Direction for a series for the episode... Hody Christus Natus Est for the series Nothing Scared. I have no idea what that no. means, and I'm not going to look you it mean up. Nothing Sacred? Was it Nothing Sacred or Nothing Scared? No, you're right. It is Nothing Sacred. Okay, I, I kind of had heard of that. It just 
to like I don't know. I just know that something called that existed in the nineties. I didn't see it. Now we'll talk about um, Kirk's uh, untimely end in just a moment, but let's move on. Next we have Terry McMinn as Pam. Now Terry doesn't have many acting credits to her name. But she's come to terms with her film infamy. She had this to say, well, it was a fine... Let me start again. Well, it was fine the first 25 years, but I'm basically off the hook. I have a lot of other interests that are close to my heart, and they keep me busy. But I do love to watch people's responses because they just love, love it so much. And we all get so many laughs about it. It's really a hoot and has brought a lot of unexpected joy to me and so many others. People actually whisper in crowded rooms, did you know she's the girl on the hook from Texas Chainsaw Massacre? The original? I just had to smile. After all, who would have thought that this little film would become a cult classic? I'm in the Museum of Modern Art, for goodness sake. Toby and Kim have every reason to be proud of what they accomplished under more than challenging circumstances. We all do. I have a lot of fond memories all about it. Now, we're definitely going to talk more about Pam when we get to our victim section. Uh, but last but certainly not least, we have Alan Danzinger as Jerry. Um, Jerry is very, very active on Facebook. He and I are friends. And um, I would have loved to have interviewed him. Uh, Jerry just celebrated, I think, his 80th birthday. Lord. So... Not exactly tech tech sound. Sorry, sorry, uh, Alan. Be just being honest. Um, Alan had been in the Toby Hooper inner circle since appearing appearing in Eggshells, so he's he's one of the OGs. He hadn't appeared in, in the movie since Texas Chainsaw Massacre until he had two films scheduled to be released uh, coming out soon. One called Storage Locker, and the other one called Cannibal Comedian. Now I reached out to him. And I was like, well, I can't do an interview, blah, 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 but I'll give you a quote. So he, he gave this quote direct. This is exclusive territory whoa, right whoa. here. Who to Thunk, a film I was in almost 50 years ago, would be now considered one of the best horror movies ever made. I recently returned from my first Frightmare convention in Dallas, where we, tr- we were treated like horror royalty, and the fans lined up to get our autograph. The first horror con I went to, I was apprehensive thinking I would be met... Uh, I would be meeting serial killer wannabes. Just the opposite. They were the loveliest and most appreciative fans I would ever meet. I am truly grateful to still be above ground to realize how much the 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre has meant to so many fans. That's awesome. I do have to say something real quick. People give the most negative thoughts to horror movie fans and heavy metal fans, but they have the nicest fan bases of any other pop and culture. That's actually scientifically proven. Yeah, it really it, yeah. is that uh, we are we are the most well-adjusted. Uh, I mean, not me, but well, I'm. You have to use you know a blanket a, a blanket term of math to uh, to make this applicable. But uh, people that that listen to heavy metal were were uh, they had higher. Test scores. Test scores, emotional uh, uh, Emotional awareness. Maturity. Yeah, and, mature. uh, and, and uh, We're so. just better. Yeah, Dicks okay. bigger, better lovers. <laughs> that's, 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 that's science. science. That's science. 100% science. Sorry, ladies. I'm taken. <laughs> All right. It, it may seem like we've shortchanged these characters a little bit, and we're obviously we're running you know, pretty Super long, long on this episode. So we're going to flesh them out a little more in our next section. But this section's all about what the people came for. 
And that's the gore and the murder. So let's break down our victims. Number one, Kirk and Pam wonder further away from the rest of their peers in search of a watering hole that, unbeknownst to them, has run dry. In the distance, they hear the dull roar of a generator, so they head towards the sound in hopes that they might find gas. They walk around the front porch where Kirk finds a tooth that he scares Pam with, and she, you know, storms off. Kirk proceeds to knock on the door to no response, but in the worst mistake of his short life, enters the farmhouse and walks toward a sound that I can only describe as a hog ejaculating, (laughs) only to get clubbed in the head with a hammer by Leatherface. Kirk falls to the floor, and his body twitches feverishly, so Leatherface whacks him a couple more times for good measure. Leatherface drags Kirk's body, and in one of the most stark, scary Uh. moments in the history of film, slams that metal door shut. What do you give this kid? Ten out of fucking ten. I'm right there with you. Yeah, it has to be. Like... You're this whole damn movie. Anyway, yeah, ten out of fucking ten. This kill is so visceral, and it's wonderfully built up. When Leatherface shuts that door, it's like an exclamation point on the kill, and truly one of the most memorable things I've ever seen in a movie. Now... When talking to Fat Fuck Scott about this movie, one of the things he cites that he didn't like about this movie was how weak the kills were. And and it just makes me so fucking sad. Child. It makes me so sad because I think the kills in this movie are fucking fantastic. I felt like I, the first time through, and the first couple of like I'm watching somebody die. I'm watching a real life murder. This is how it goes down in real life. It's not a, It's not pretty. It's not cinematic. It's visceral, terrifying, and quick. It put me in touch with my own mortality at eight or nine. <laughs> eight or nine. It was nine, I think. Now, in the intervening time, Pan has been sitting patiently on a swing outside the farmhouse, but curiously, as uh, curiosity, as they say, kills the cat. So she heads over into the farmhouse looking for Kirk. Moving from room to room, she slips on the bones and chicken feathers that cover the floor. What proceeds is a horrifying montage of caged chickens, bone art, and mental hysteria. Terrifying beyond the capacity of rational thought, Pam runs towards the exit, but is pulled back inside, screaming by an emerging leather face. He carries her flailing body into the kitchen, drops her on a meat hook. She screams in agony as she could, as she watches the corpse of Kirk be dismembered with a chainsaw. So we have a not a kill with a chainsaw, but we have a post-mortem use of the yes. chainsaw there, at least. What you got on this kill? 10 out of fucking 10, the whole I, scene. I agree. 10 <laughs> out of 10. The image of Pam being grabbed by Leatherface on the porch, that's so iconic. That's, that's the that's the p- picture you put on the back of the box. Yes. That's 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 your your uh your secondary art. You know, that's the one like, oh shit, this is a visceral moment of somebody being, you know, drugged literally. I mean, Outside, it's so beautiful and angelic. Sunny, and, it, and, it should be safe. When you're in the sun and then in nature, it should be, no, fuck you. No, you, you, pull, you get pulled into the belly of the beast. Such an interesting uh, and visceral scene. Uh, 10 out of 10. Now, we technically don't see Pam die. And in fact, she would be found alive in the freezer by Jerry a little later on. But the implication is that she does die. However, because we don't see her die, Terry McMahon insists her character survives. So, all right. Does No, she's dead. (laughs) Bitch is dead. She died bad. She died slow and was eaten. 
Or at least chopped up and fed to hogs. Um, until somebody tells me otherwise, and even then I don't I don't know that I would believe them. You dead, bitch. <laughs> you're <laughs> you're fucking, so dead. You're fucking dead. Um, the other aspect about this scene that is probably the most interesting shot in the film, and one of my favorite sequences in any film ever, is that shot under the swing as she gets up and it, it like you know pans yeah. out to the 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 farmhouse. That's that's an amazing fucking shot. According to Daniel Pearl, they were staying really close to the storyboards, but they they got to this moment and that swing was there and they're like, fuck, we've we've got to do something with this. So it was done on the fly. Oh, that's cool. And that's amazing because I mean the crap the the crew was already pissed off because they were you know taking so long to do stuff and they're like no you 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 don't understand like this is going to be the moment everybody remembers from this movie and I think everybody would agree that time uh, well spent yeah but what what do you think about the this shot it's it's overall this is like watching the first kill I'm witnessing murder in real life in my little head. Watching this whole second sequence makes me realize I'm never safe, no matter what. I cannot outrun the monsters, and I'm fucked. No matter how beautiful or nice anything is, we're all doomed to meet Leatherface in the end. Now, the the shot in particularly stands out, but it also highlights another aspect of the film that we haven't touched, and that's probably, if I had to guess, is for budgetary reasons. But it is very different than 90% of slasher films that would follow. And it's like most of this movie takes place during the day. Yeah. Does yeah. that does that make it scarier? Yes, because bad stuff's supposed to happen in the night, in the dark. In the day, it's supposed to be safe. That's like an, an animal brain human thing. That, that's why we're not nocturnal creatures naturally. Speak you, I know you. I'll get up at like 3 o'clock in the morning and get ready for it. Why is Brandon still online? But uh, no, like... It, it does make it more effective. Like, Ari Aster's pretentious ass tried to do it with uh, Midsummer, <laughs> But there were effective... The, the cliff diving scene? Beautifully shot. Beautifully well. shot, the daytime, and horrific. But, I mean, it's very effective. I think it's movie. just the juxtaposition. It's like you're saying. Uh, you, you feel, you know, light safe. is there, so you're I have, safe. I have one more thing. And also, it, it works to crank up the third act that is at night. True. So much more because all this horrific shit has already happened and now it's night and he's in the woods and you hear the fucking chainsaw. Woo! My heart rate's coming up just thinking about it. (laughs) All right. Number three. When Pam and Kirk don't return to the van, Jerry decides to go look for them and makes the ill-advised decision. So he enters the farmhouse. So we're three for three on stupid uh, decisions. But this Texas is a stand your ground state, and they're home invasion. <laughs> so well, that's three three justifiable homicides <laughs> so, so far. He makes his way to the kitchen where he hears a rumbling in the freezer, only to discover that it's the near dead body of Pam. When she pops out, this is really the only jump scare. Oh in, in no, the, you're missing a big one. We'll get to it. Okay, the, you're you're right. But yeah, that, that's directly tied into a an actual kill. Yeah, know? it's a fake jump. Not not fake jump scare, but not a terminal jump scare. Yeah. I guess um, a, a a this is a misdirect. Yes, um, but it's hammer time, and he gets <laughs> taken out uh, with. Bluntly by Leatherface. What do you give this kill? Still 10 out of 10 because, again, the, the great jump scare. I know you're probably going to knock it less, 
But it is. He's right. Uh, I know Brandon. Every kill in this but one is a 10 out of 10. Uh, but cause it's, it's a little bit more savage. It's a little bit more, and it, it is at this point a little bit more horror movie. So I think it's a relief to me a little cause you have the spooky fake jump scare, but like the whole setting and you know, it's going to happen and it's almost a cathartic release when it does, but I still give it a 10 out of 10. Um, the setup I think is great. Don't get me wrong. The misdirect and her Pam popping out and that sound. It's, it's a great moment. However, uh, three kills in a row. Basically, using the hammer. Two, I can excuse. I think three is just oh. one, one too many. I wish I would have been fine if he just punched him or, or something. Just something to give me a little more. They already variety. set up that the hammer is the best way to kill. You die the best. You're, you're, that is a that is a foundational idea of this family. That's true. He's being he's being uh, economic about yeah. his, his ways. I still rated it a six out of ten. Feel That's free, way too feel, low. Feel free to, to you know to crucify me if on that. If you see Brandon out in public, you can spit on him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, number four. Uh, hours have passed, and the wheelchair-bound Franklin and his sister Sally follow in the ill-fated footsteps of their friends to go searching. Armed with only a flashlight, Sally pushes Franklin deep into the woods. Franklin pans the flashlight across the darkened frame, only to illuminate a face covered in leather. A chainsaw massacre of sorts ensues when Franklin is finally silenced. What do you give this kill? Fucking 10 out of 10. That's the one I'm saying. It's like, I think I hear something. <laughs> the fucking eyes and just, oh, Lord. Oh, it's one of those that I've truly had a memory like watching it again at like 12 or 13 and having seen it at nine, I'm like, man, this is so gory. It's so fat. It's not. You see some blood spray and Gunnar Hansen kind of putting the, the thing forward, but it is so effective. I jumped off the couch. I know a hundred percent. Like I stood up during that fucking scene. It is 10 out of 10. If you get anything less than a 10 out of 10, this is a bigger mistake than picking a touch of evil on painkiller. I also gave it a 10 okay. out of 10. Uh, the setup is absolutely perfect. It's another great misdirect. That image of the, the light hitting Leatherface. Leatherface's face is one of the images that will be burned in my brain for from now until eternity. If I have Alzheimer's, I'm going to have a very bad time. So it's all going to be Leatherface images, the screaming dinner. Like I'm going to think I lived a fucked up life. You know, the, if if I were going to critique this, um, and and I'm just I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate right here to argue against myself, just because we're agreeing with each other yeah. so much. If this were done more contemporarily, Franklin would not have his back to the camera. You would actually, oh yeah, you'd you, see you, the chainsaw see split up because, and that was probably an economic decision oh, as yeah. much as anything. But well, I, he was trying to aim for a PG. Well, that's that you're right. But he made he actually made the scene more fucked up than by keeping it. By yeah, keeping it's it it's one of those old that my mom was always like, "Oh, horror movies were best." She's not an old Jewish lady. I don't know why I did that. In, but uh, <laughs> she's like, "Oh, because it's left to the imagination." And we had this conversation way later in adult life. I'm like, "Mom, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not gory." Yeah, I mean, it it is one of those best. And she debated. And I showed her that scene on YouTube. I'm like, here's the scene. Like, look, you don't see blood because she did the same thing. My brain because she saw this like once on a double date back in the fucking 70s at a drive-in, and she said, I spent 
because I like fucking with it. I spent most of the time with my head in his lap. I'm like, I don't need to know what you were doing during a movie, Mom. Oh, but like, oh, oh. <laughs> that glug glug 9000 oh, shit. One of these. <laughs> Free love. While <laughs> we're filming this, because <laughs> yeah, they can get the images of my mom pleasing to me. I have, uh, but, I, have I have that image in my head all the time. <laughs> but no, like, like so she realized it is like it's what your brain can make is worse than anything a filmmaker can make. All right, number five. After spending an evening at the dinner party from hell, Sally is able to escape and jump through a window. This is the second she's jumped through, mind you, through the course of the film. Uh, she runs down the road. Not far behind is the hitchhiker who is just whipping her with a straight razor. The hitchhiker is accidentally hit by an oncoming, oncoming semi-truck and just before... Uh, you know, becomes another piece of Texas roadkill. What do you give this kill? Nine out of ten because it does like budgetarily. It's very fake looking, but and it's it's kind of funny, which I think we, it's, might have been intentional. It might have been a little bit of catharsis, but I like. I don't think it is because this movie's not meant to have catharsis. It's meant to end with Leatherface doing his dance and nothing having been resolved, just like the Vietnam War. But uh, like. It's the only thing that seemed almost... It's the only kill to me that seems kind of cinematic. That's why it's not a perfect 10 out of 10 for me. It's still a fucking 9 out of 10, so it's hilarious. I, I have it as a 10 out of 10. That's fine. I'm not arguing against that. And I, I think the reason that I have it as a 10 out of 10, because it's ambitious for a movie made on the budget... Fair enough. Um, ...that's old-fashioned camera tricks. Basically... Uh, the truck backs away, you know, from him rather than yeah. running into him, and and from that shot, and then the actual truck running over the dummy yeah. is not perfect. But for a movie made for get, you, you know three hundred thousand three hundred thousand dollars, shit, man, that looks fucking great. And I will say this: technology as it progresses makes this movie look less to me because in my ingrained in my head, it, it still looks like it was on VHS. And if you look on this in VHS, it looks fucking tremendous. DVD, yeah, it's okay, not great. Blu-ray, it's like motherfucker. That looks that <laughs> is very noticeable. But ten out of ten for me. I, I, it, Fair it, enough. It, at this point in the story, you need something big to happen. Let's give it a big splashy little and exclamation point. It's like the you know, it perfectly caps off the scene, and then it ends the movie with an improvised moment that is another piece of film iconography that happened basically by accident. And that was just because Gunnar Hansen was so frustrated with the whole shoot. He just swings the chainsaw around and, and the infamous Leatherface dance happens. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, this is another thing where like, I've heard people say they don't understand what makes it scary. And I think it's because it's unexplained. Yeah, it just is. It's evil that is. No reason, no nothing, no nice happy ending, cleanly wrapped up. It's just... <sighs> Guys, we're getting close to the end. I don't know about you, but after all this car carnage, 
I think I could use a drink. So let's drink it in, man. Drink it in, man. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Edition. Now, once you've listened to this retrospective, we invite all of you out there in the Rant Army to pop in your VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, or Blu-ray digital copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and play this fun drinking game. Well, I want you to take a shot whenever you hear Franklin being annoying. Oh, God. That, that right there should be the entire game. Yeah, that's you're going to die of alcohol poison. So you, you might as well just go ahead and put just put the IV drip into your arm. Yes. Um, start drinking in the hospital, in like in the lobby. That way you're, <laughs> you're close proximity to a bed. Um, anytime Leatherface changes his mask, take a shot. To, anytime there's a close-up shot, shot of Pam's ass, take a shot. Noise. Anytime Grandpa drops the hammer... Take a shot. You're smash drunk by this point. Anytime you can see Sally's nipples poking through her purple tank top, take Double a shot. Double noise. Take a shot. Anytime someone honks the horn on the van, take a shot. Now mix and match all of these. Don't do all of them or you will die. You are not me. You're not genetically built to exist on al- alcohol. I mean, you could do shots of uh, you know beer. Yeah, you could take sips of beer. Or if like shots of like, yeah, if, if you're, you're a pussy. A, if you're a pussy. <laughs> or like 10 years old. No. Or like, you know, sips of a margarita. We're not advocating for, for underage children I drinking. Am specifically. Kids do it. It's great. You'll be cool. Sarcasm. So yeah, uh, now we're legal. I said sarcasm. Oh, man. Okay. Anytime you hear uh, grunting or pig sounds, take a shot. Anytime the chainsaw is revved. Take a shot. Now, in the sequels, that will kill you. Yeah, that'll easily kill it, you. It doesn't happen as much in this one, so they, nice even buzz. Anytime someone mentions gasoline, take a shot. Finally, take a double shot whenever Grandpa sucks Sally's finger just because it's sexy. So sexy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> we don't have the bottle. Where's that bottle of taco? <laughs> oh, damn. I, I, oh, it's fine. I was going to hold it up like I was going to do an impromptu taco commercial. Damn it. Taco, the drink of champions. <laughs> slightly, slightly better. Uh, uh, well, no, it's, it's, it's way better it's than way Traversky. Better, but it's uh, slightly better than, you know, regular vodka off the shelf. It's, it's, it's the best of the affordable brand vodkas. Indeed. Now, for those of you who take your drinking seriously, we also have a Texas Chainsaw Massacre inspired cocktail, courtesy of our friend over at the Martini Shot on YouTube. So you're going to take, uh, write this down. Here's your ingredients. Two ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce of sweet vermouth, one ounce of chili syrup, splash of water, two dashes of orange bitters, two uh, dashes of, I'm going to mispronounce this, and Angostura? Angostura bitters? I have no fucking yeah. clue either. And you're going to need an orange peel. So what you're going to do is your directions. Pour two ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce of uh, sweet vermouth, and one ounce of chili syrup into a glass. You're going to add a splash of water, two dashes of orange bitters, and two ashes of that shit Her, I can't. Yeah. Ang- Angora bitters. Bitters. <laughs> bitters. And you're going to mix it vigorously, serve with ice, and you're going to garnish it with an orange peel. And if you really want to kick up the creativity, you're going to cut that orange peel to look like a little face. Oh. So it's got a little orange peel uh, leather face mask. And just remember, drink responsibly. Don't do it. Drink and drive. It's cool, kid. Sarcasm. I, 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 Fat Tony does not play I'm, about I, drinking and driving. I'm going to cut all that out to make you look horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, kids, drink. Drink and drive. <laughs> Please kill your parents. <laughs> murder is cool. Well, murder is cool, but you know, only if it's cool people like right. cool people doing the killing. So 
Final thoughts, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Best horror movie of all, my favorite horror movie of all time. I won't say best. I will say best for me. No, fuck it. I'm saying best. If Joe Bob says it's his favorite, it's the fucking best. Scientifically proven. Suck a dick. I think it's all the way you look at it. Um, to me, The Exorcist is the best movie that is horror, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre horror is the best movie. horror movie. Yes. Okay. All right. Before we close out this episode, we got to take a minute or two to talk about our five years. Five fucking years. On the air. What is your favorite episode of this year of, or no, all time? Just, um, Nightmare Two. Nightmare, Nightmare Two? Two will always be like we re- like. I was pretty drunk. We kept drinking through that. We had good insights. Uh, broke it down well. Defended the shit out of a movie we both love. Yeah, unequivocally. That a lot of people shit on and they're flat out wrong for. You had the great Chuck Shoulder interview at the top of it. <laughs> Jack Shoulder. Jack Shoulder. Chuck Shoulder. <laughs> I'd love to interview Josh. him, but, he, but he's dead. Yes. Jack Shoulder interview. Uh, Mark Patton did, Mark the, Patton did the intro. The screen queen himself. That is my overall favorite episode. I think that was a, a shifting moment in the podcast where it's like, well, if we're going to do this movie, we've got to, well, you know, I've got to do more research than normal. And it's it's become the standard because this podcast, I'm mean, not knocking some of the older episodes, but there's ones like I, I can't listen to. The ones I'm not on suck. No, there's only one I'm on that I think so. We were way too fucking drunk during Leprechaun 3. <laughs> I think we lose track. It goes no, off the rails halfway. No, we it's were, good entertainment, good content. Li- listen, I love Brian Trenchard Smith, but we, were, we, we did that movie justice. <laughs> no, I'm saying like... Our talk, I think we stopped talking about it for like 20 minutes while the, the major thing. That's think, fine. Yeah. I mean, are you really going to defend that we need to cover Leprechaun no, 3 in no. more depth? No, I'm just saying, like, we were shithouse hammered during Human Centipede 3, but we well, kept on We kept on point with that. No, we didn't. Well, yeah, we were until I was like, I just threatened violence to you. I read movie reviews. I waking blackout did not remember doing. Yeah, don't ever get human don't get human centipede three drunk kids. No, it's not the amount; it, it was the speed at which we drank it. The speed and the consistency. We had a pint of hundred proof vodka down each in the first twenty minutes of that movie. We might have had that much left by the end of it. That's a ninety minute movie. <laughs> like, oh man, Tom Six, make more movies. <laughs> okay, um, my favorite episode of all time. And this is it's everything you said about Nightmare Two. I could probably apply to this one, but The Exorcist I think is the first, my favorite episode we've ever done. Um, you want to tell real quick the the most hilarious, unintentional, fucked up thing it's, I've ever it, done in it's my life? It's the darkest shit ever. My mom died like two or three days before we recorded, but I and Sid Brandon's like we can blow. I'm like no, I really need this. It will distract. If you listen to it, my speech gets really slurry about an hour and a half in because I consistently drink. Well, he used to have a segment. He sometimes still has fan questions. Well, I, I and, and just to, is this the to, thing that to, killed it? To it, no, just oh. to address it, I try to gauge how 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 much I don't want these episodes to be like five hours long. And sometimes it yeah. feels like I just it's best to leave them out. And yes, people, when you send me questions, it pains me not to include them. Don't stop sending them because. Sometimes we're going to have room for them, and sometimes we won't. Yes, but, but 
One of the fan questions from one of your buddies always gives a joke when. Um, no, that, I think that oh, was. Oh, is that an actual? I think it was from Michael Williams, is his name. Oh. Well, it was, does your mother suck cocks in hell? It's like he could not stop. It's like, does your mother suck cocks in hell? Right after my mom died. Me telling this story of my cock blocking mom on that episode, the horror in Brandon's eyes was one of the funniest things I've ever... There was no point in that. I knew that question would come up. I was like, I hope it would be funny. I doubt Brandon will read it. And then he just goes on to... Because Brandon is a creature of habit. If it's in the script, he's Ron Burgundy. If it's on the page, he's going to read it. That's right. But I'd also had my notes done prior to your mom passing. This wasn't done like intentionally. Brandon gets his shit done well in advance. And my mom died just before this, and the look of horror, like he's going to see me, and I'm just dying laughing. I wish, I wish that we had been re- filming. That would have been great. That would have been that would have been viral <laughs> video so quick. Me, my red eyes, drunk, having cried a lot, but you know, having a good time on that. We talk a lot of good. Uh, that's a very good episode. I get a little slurry toward the end, but the the look of Brandon reading that question, unable to stop himself. Knowing full well, I I was like almost four four fourths into three fourths of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh fuck! It <laughs> dawned on me, and I, I it was like a bomb went off in my heart. Yeah, I can see he was genuinely upset, and that just made it funnier for me. <laughs> like that's it. There was no that was the first real ray of light I had. After that, that that I honestly helped my morning process. I'm, I'm really glad that you have a fucked up sense of humor. Because if I didn't and got offended, I'd have just gone berserk. That actually was, may have made the the episode better. It's just 20 drunk. minutes of you beating my body <laughs> senseless. Okay, a favorite moment from this past year doesn't have to be an episode necessarily. Favorite like moment? Oh, fucking Frankencon, dude. I agree. But the fucking Brian Bremer thing, man. Getting the crowd to scream the living legend and just ah, so much fucking fun. Yeah. It's, it's a, and he was so fucking nice. He was incredibly nice. He donated uh, an autograph to yeah. our uh, McFarland Pumpkinhead figure. We auctioned it off uh, and we raised money for the Ronnie James Dio Stand Show yeah. Cancer Fund. It was just an amazing moment. But I have to tell you, the, the night before that... Um, I got to induct Mick into our pointless Hall of Fame during the number four showing at Central Cinema, and th- and not to take away from anything else we've done, but number one for me this year, not an episode, but seeing the lovely and incredibly talented Darcy the Mail Girl yes. wearing our fucking oh, shirt. Oh fuck yeah on Twitter! That that I, that was unexpected. I, that was non prompted. I mean, I gave her the shirt, but I never I never Just, thought she would you know ever wear it it's it's a, it's the hope but you know i mean time doing her makeup chilling out in the ramps from the black lodge tank top i woke up sadie like sadie darcy's wearing the tank and luckily she had slept it was like two in the afternoon this is a pre-breakup fuck you trevor uh <laughs> but uh like even she would knew what a big deal that was that is a that was a cool moment yeah um joe bob and, and i I haven't corresponded directly with with Joe Bob, but uh, I I talk to Darcy semi regularly, and uh, they're going to be coming through my work eventually. They're going to come shortly after Frankencon, but she actually got food poisoning, and they had to kind of set back their schedule, so they weren't able to make it up to my neck of the woods. But Joe Bob and Darcy, they're going to be coming to my, you know, my humble abode, and I'm going to show them some behind-the-scenes scary stuff. So that's going to be a cool moment. Not so much for the podcast, but just a personal moment for myself. But um, 
before we close out, I feel like now we have to give thanks to the people surrounding the podcast that really helped help us out. You got any people you want to thank? I want to give a shout out to a young kid who's recently become a super fan, Mason Cox. Thank you, Mason. I've seen, listen to every fucking episode multiple times, having great ideas, like loving the show. Uh, I need to give a shout out also to my lovely wife just because it's our anniversary and she makes it possible by allowing me to come up. <laughs> I'd hit her if she said no. <laughs> and she'd laugh at me and kick me in the balls. But no, like, um, just it's just everybody who anybody who's listened, anybody you know, every every single person who donated money at FrankenCon. Yeah, thank I you. Mean, you have no idea. Uh, that means how, a lot. I mean, you know, all the preparation we did for FrankenCon, and like it's in the back of my head, like. You know, like, I know we're low men on the totem pole. Like, you know, we may get a couple people to, like, donate, but we had an overwhelming amount of people throwing money into our bucket. And that's, it's it's a it's a nice feeling that maybe all isn't lost for humanity. I also need to take a moment to also give a shout out to Brandon Lane, busting his ass for Frank and Con with the most we had. Hypnosil, Nancy Thompson's it's literally back here. Oh yeah, Hypnosil, uh, drug things, the Leprechaun Gold, the badass. You don't I have don't one have, handy. I don't have VHS one goodie bag. God, dear oh. was- <laughs> Look how much cool shit is in here. Brandon ordered. I mean, he ordered. Uh, Brandon is the mastermind of this. Brandon put his heart and fucking soul and money where his mouth was. Like, I'm going to be buying a table for an upcoming event. He's like, are you sure? I'm like, dude, after all the well, fucking money. Well, by the time this episode's out, that event will have already happened. But, but yeah, it's, oh, appre- yeah. it's appreciated. You're going to be helping out. Finally. Good for something besides sex appeal. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm Brandon, you're the, you you have busted your ass. Well, I, I'm the number one person on my list to thank is you. Oh. And that's because you've been a cheerleader since jumping on board and, um, the, the looming question, and I don't think I've ever even discussed this with you, is when I started this podcast, um, well, not to get too deep into it, but I was I was dealing with some some mental issues. Uh, I fell down some, <coughs> some stairs, and uh, I had, this was a means of overcoming some aspects of that, but when I started about maybe like the third episode in and I'm like I'm going to actually try and take this seriously rather than just something fun to do Um, I intentionally didn't tell you about it and I didn't tell you about the podcast for a while it's because like you were the only critic that like (laughs) I mean I'm serious about that you're the only critic that like I'm like I only want this you to know about this when I feel like it is good enough to be I mean yeah I know I honestly and you can ask all my kids I'm like, well, Brandon says he likes it, so it's got to be good. You are my benchmark of what is good in most things. Like, Beavis and Bud, you said it's funny. I'm going to get it for my daughter to watch. Anything like So, I honestly, that like, that's all. Oh. Oh, good, good, should we touch tips? <laughs> save, save it for later. We're going to have some stuff from bonus, bonus footage. Um, next on the list, TJ Bowser and Project Louder. They gave us a platform to verbally masturbate upon, and um, we've been with them for... Uh, an official member for over a year and uh, an auxiliary member for a couple of years. Um, one of the best decisions we ever made was um, halting 
our feed and moving the new episodes onto theirs. And we're consistently charting on iTunes, uh, you know, in America, Vietnam, Britain, Britain, Vietnam, uh, <laughs> Uh, Ireland is a, a stronghold for us. Why? No fucking clue. But we're very, very they feel appreciative. My, my, my Irish ancestry coming through. And uh, both of us want to give a, a rousing uh, round of applause to the gentleman sitting behind the desk today. Woo! Mr. Jason Davis, who has been my audio engineer, my tech guru since day one, because I don't know anything about this shit and I will never know anything about this shit. I don't want to know anything <laughs> about this shit. This is uncharted territory. And hopefully today this uh, this footage will make its way out to you. But if not, you know, we've still got the awesome audio set up. And we're just very, very happy to have an opportunity to maybe take steps towards the future. And this won't be a regular occurrence, but, you know, maybe every once in a Five while. Five-year anniversary. you got to pull out the stuff. This, this is a big deal. This means a lot, a lot to me. And we're hoping it means a lot to you out there. Um, even though he hates Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, you know, other great horror films, Fat Fuck Scott. Um, Still love you. He's been a huge cheerleader for the podcast. And I remember the point where I knew that, like, I might actually have something is the moment that Scott actually listened to an episode where enough people had, had said like, oh man, that episode was great. And he's like, oh, well maybe I should actually listen to it. It's like, motherfucker, like how many times you got to be on this podcast <laughs> before you actually listen to it? But, um, it's, it's, he's been greatly appreciative and he's, he's moved, he's moved on to the, the barren wasteland that is Ohio. And we, we wish him, uh, do as he grows a, a try, attempts to grow a farmer's beard and um, tills the soil and rides his mule to the, the fucking I don't know what they do up there, but you know off to the horizon it's flat and featureless and horrible yeah. and they don't the roads don't curb apparently they don't allow podcasting up there they don't yeah so I don't know what the fuck he's gonna do sorry. Ohio so Barn dances. <laughs> barn dance. There you go. Sh- shake what mama gave you, you fat fuck. <laughs> um, Stank Dick Eddie and Titty Flip and Travis, they're my cohorts on Wrestling Ruin, the other podcast I never mentioned on here. I've been trying to, to get a commercial for Wrestling Ruin. Hopefully it'll be on this episode. But um, both of those guys, good friends. And, you know, Eddie is my October guy. <laughs> Um, we talk Halloween and Titty Flip and Travis. If we ever do another wrestling related movie, um, which our subscriber count always goes down when we do it. So for, that's why we have a wrestling podcast. But, um, both good guys, Travis, uh, at the time this episode comes out, he will have literally had gotten married the day before this, oh. I believe, or two days before this. So congratulations from the future con- to the past. Congratulations on throwing your life away. <laughs> just kidding, Lindsay. <laughs> I don't know, y'all. I'll just behave. <laughs> um, Richard, Matt, and Corey from Franken-Con, those guys... Uh, they ran a tight ship, they, too. That is the best one-day con, first-time con, I've ever been to. And I'm not saying that because I'm friends with the guys. I legitimately mean that. I've been to conventions that have ran for years that were not ran that well. And... You know, maybe it was luck, but I, a lot of it just goes down to hard work and determination. I tip my cap to you guys, and they, I guess, now be the perfect time to, uh, to announce yeah. it. We have been, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We have been invited back to next year's Bride of Franken Con, same location, going from a one-day con to a two-day con. Fuck yes. And, you know, our, our booth is comped. We're going to be doing 
some kind of, uh, you know, horror related thing, probably for some charities. Well, that, and we're going to be doing some, some panels. We don't know who they're going to be booking, but we're going to be doing more live. I'd like to joke that I'm egotistical, but even humbly that our panel killed. Like the crowd was involved. The man Brian Bremer stopped me on the way to the parking lot to thank and like was oh my god it was so much fun. Yeah, he was he was so one of the best storytellers ever. I I'm I'm a super awkward human being. I'm I am not a social person generally, but there is something <coughs> about when you put a microphone in my hand that allows me to cast outside of my normal boundaries. It's because it's like a dick. <laughs> you, you cracked the fucking code, man. No. No. It's just, it's so remis- reminiscent of, well, it's kind of small. This is too small. For- <laughs> <laughs> my head is like, it's enormous. It's like, I'm just... It exists in five uh, dimensions. Yeah, I wish that were true. Um, now, whether or not he wants to be thanked, mixed drawn for not only for being a friend, yeah. but like I thank feel you like for being a friend, thank you for being a friend because you're old. Uh, I've been joking with him that he needs to start a show called um, Golden Dudes, <laughs> and it's it's him and John Dugan just ranting, like yelling at clouds and stuff because they're old fucks. But in all sincerity, the moment that Mick granted us an interview, which I told this story when we were at Central Cinema. I didn't ask for an interview. I wanted to do an introduction because I didn't have a fucking clue how to do an interview. And and people... He, he people, popped your cherry on he that. He definitely, definitely popped my cherry. And people will message me sometimes. It's like, hey, why don't you do more interviews? It's like, dude, I don't know how to do interviews. I, I'm so socially awkward. And with Mick, like, I don't have that reservation with him at all because we've legitimately become <laughs> friends. So I have a rapport with him. And it was instant. Like he doesn't give you an, a a chance to to feel you know standoffish with him because that motherfucker's going to be in your bubble, and now he is the the herpy upon <laughs> upon my podcasting pain, and I, I hope that, that I've reciprocated. I just hope we're just trading you know podcasting SEDs back and forth. Oh my god! Every single person who has ever downloaded this podcast, listened to it, shared post. The Ran Army, you're the you're the most Fuck important yes. component of all this. So uh, we tip our caps to you because uh, your positive reinforcement it gives us reason to continue doing this. Because as much as I love doing it, just for the sake of it, you have no idea how much work this could be sometimes. And uh, not for me though. I just have to come look good and make witty rapport. Well, even, even I'm ready to put in work for the FrankenCon though. Yeah, we're we're uh, we got a tight ship and. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, setting sail into the future. Shoot, guys, I think that's going to wrap us up for this episode. We'll be back later this month for a commentary, and this one has been on, oh, on yes. the list since day one. Stephen King, George Romero classic, Creep Show. So excited to be breaking that down on Rants After Dark. Till then, the Rants from the Black Lodge po- Rants from, I can't even talk. Till then, the Rants from the Black Lodge Pot. Motherfucker, you know what we ain't done? Motherfucker, we haven't drank our celebrate. Celebr- we haven't. Shot. I was waiting on that. I'm like, when the fuck is it happening? I can't believe I'm getting off topic. To five years. To five years. That's why you couldn't close it. That's right. That's right. Breaking, breaking tradition there. The Rants in the Black Lodge podcast can be found on a multitude of platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, so please go give us a sub. 
<laughs> you can find us on social media at Rance Black Lodge. We're getting close to 4,000 followers on Twitter, and that doesn't ultimately matter, but it's a nice feeling when you see one day where it's like, 99 people have followed you. I'm like, fuck, why? <laughs> awesome. Please, please continue that. Absolutely. Uh, check us out on our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a t-shirt, a mug, or a sticker from our web store at RantArmy.com. For Fat Tony, I'm Brandon A. Lane, signing off. Till next month, Rant Army, keep marching. What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it.